how am I supposed to ruin my life as a middle-aged man right now? The way it's manifesting for me is a, a truly bizarre time compression. Yeah, I naturally have a pretty good sense of time. Like I, I, I'm one of those people. Like if I when I would do a talk on stage and maybe like it's a 20 minute slot, and I can hit 18 minutes in my head and I know what it is. Uh, so like I got a pretty good internal clock, and yet I don't know what day it is, and I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what I, I have to look up at the the menu bar to be like I, I definitely know the month we're yeah. in. You know what I mean? And and that's so so like it, it just such a loss of grounding. It's a loss of grounding in that short term of like uh, what day is it? What you know? And everybody's going through it. It's clearly shared, and yet at the same time, it's really exacerbating like that sort of longer term. Wait, really? It's 20 years since I started talking mm-hmm. to Emil about stuff and reading his yeah. blog. And, <laughs> and yeah. you know, uh, we'll get into it in a moment. I want to talk about it because it's the 25-year anniversary of Windows 95, and you, you wrote about it, and it's like, you know, I mean, it's natural. We're, you know, mid-40s, and it's like, yeah, we do remember stuff from 25 years ago, and we were enthusiasts in the community, and I remember I didn't get in mm-hmm. line because I didn't have a Windows PC, but I certainly remember reading about people getting in line to buy Windows 95, and it's like, you know, you remember this stuff, and a lot of the people, not like not like I have the youngest demographic, <laughs> but I do realize there the are- kids, there are, they love you. There are people listening, and I do hear from them, and I, I whenever I make jokes, they, they often write to me and say, no, I'm, you know, I'm 18, and I love your podcast, and, and whatever, and I'm yeah. so glad. It makes me feel like I'm doing something right. <laughs> no, it's, I definitely shouldn't have an audience completely- You're irrelevant. Yeah. You're pertinent. Uh, you know- I, I don't TikTok, but I, I know you know I know how to spell it. Uh, <laughs> oh, I would pay cash money to watch John Gruber on TikTok. Yeah, I don't. Know. I want to see you doing a lot of dances. It's mostly your arms. Yeah, like that's really that's what I think is your strong suit. <laughs> uh, I have exactly as much rhythm as I look like I have. Mm, all right, yeah, all right. So I just I'm old fashioned. I feel like when when you know this is the, what the, what old guys say, right? right? Which is when when I was young, I feel like when I was young, people would dance by moving like their hips or their yeah. legs. But that's not that doesn't fit in frame in a vertical video, you know. Yeah. So it's just like dances are just it's just from the elbows up. Uh, yeah, that's me. Uh, <laughs> sorry, a little off time. No, but it's you know it, uh, it, it. It there there's just a sense of uh, you know there's another thing that somebody we're going to talk another thing on my show notes to talk about later is uh, somebody's observation that that. Mosaic happened 10 years after the Macintosh debuted. Mm. And, um, and there's a part of me that is like, no, you know, that, that, so, so we're talking about the app store, you know, here, this, unlike most episodes of my show, this one sort of has an index. <laughs> this, all right. All right. We got, we got subjects. We got yeah, topics. Or uh, not, an index comes at the end, I guess a table of contents. Right. Uh, uh, uh but we're talking about the App Store 12 years into the iPhone era, right? And, yeah, and we all yeah. sort of have this timeline burned into this, or 13 years, I guess, into the iPhone era, um, but 12 years into the App Store era. And, okay, that's 12, 13 years, and here's where we are. Things have changed, and that's sort of the sort of shifting of the whole world underfoot is sort of where everything is in conflict now, right? Plates have shifted, and now there's fault lines that are exposed. And, all right, historical context, uh, Mosaic and 
graphical user interface web browsing came 10 years after the original Macintosh. And it's like, no, that doesn't make sense that that was only 10 years to go all the way from a black and white nine inch computer that, with a. That's so interesting because I think of it as, oh, was it that long? Because I have this time compression on the other. And this is, I think, speaking to that point about like, Everything is through this like sort of funhouse mirror of either that had to have been much longer or much less, right? So your your feeling is much less. I'm like, oh, those are those are of a moment to me. Those are those are connected. That's still when every day I was downloading new software mm. and, and trying new things. So so I feel like there's a straight line. Like my first uh, view of the web was on was on Next, you know, where it was born, and and that was probably in '93, '94, and I was using the app called World Wide Web, like Tim Berners Lee's yeah. first app. And, and, and that was very much, and, and I, that was actually the first time I had access to a next computer. It was like in a, a, you know, university computer lab. Like they were, they were, they were way too rich for my blood. Like I couldn't, I literally, I could see one in a magazine. That was about it. But that was like the access to the machine. But to me, that was also what I think a lot of the perception still was. This is the next Apple, right? Like, the, like Jobs explicitly called it next, right? This is the right. next big thing. And next is the next Apple. And so this is my view, just like with the first time I saw a Mac at a friend's house, um, again, too rich for my blood, but like I could go and use one. I, I think it was exactly that sense of like, this is the next computer. So I saw this very much as the era of like, well, there's still new stuff. And actually all the way up until Windows 95, it was like, there was new stuff. And I think after that, it was like, oh, we're just going to have software in our lives. They're not going to have, well, you go, you go from a black and white computer or a color computer, like that, it's a, a very obviously an upgrade, like like color TV was. And, and sort of when you went from, a standalone computer to a connected computer that's on the internet. That's very obviously an upgrade. Uh, but after that, it was just like improvements in kind. It wasn't, here's a new category of thing to have in your, on your desk. Let me take a break and thank our first sponsor. Eero. Look, these days your house isn't just your home. It's an office. It's a school. It's a movie theater. It's a restaurant. Everything, really. They put a strain on your Wi-Fi. It's not good enough. If it's only good in a room or two, or maybe on one floor, you need solid Wi-Fi throughout your whole house so everyone isn't working on top of each other. You need Eero. Eero, an Amazon company, covers your whole home with fast, reliable Wi-Fi inside and out. Rooms with bad or no Wi-Fi, dropouts on your patio or your roof deck, Eero makes every square foot of your house usable. By eliminating poor coverage and dead spots, you'll have a consistently strong signal wherever you need it. You can be on a work call, your kids can be remote learning, and someone can be streaming videos all at the same time without any buffering when you have Eero. Eero is fast and easy to set up and super easy to manage. You just plug it into your modem and boom, you're good to go. The app runs on your phone. It is a terrific app. It really shows you everything. It even lets you run speed tests to test your outside network connection right in the app. You can see all of the devices that are connected to your network. Uh, and it's it's just a terrific app. And, and for a limited time, you can get up to 20% off selected Eero models. We run it here. Only problem we've had recently, the other day, Couple of problems, couple of hiccups. Turned out what happened, our Roomba ran into the power plug, knocked the Eero out of the wall behind a piece of furniture here in our living room. That's the only problem we've had with Eero in months and months and months was when it actually got pulled out of the wall. That's how reliable it is. It's really terrific. You're hearing me right now talk to you over a connection on Eero. Um, anyway, you can get up to 20% off select Eero models. Um, 
Go to Eero, E-E-R-O dot com slash the talk show and enter code the talk show at checkout and you can get free next day shipping with your order. That's E-E-R-O, Eero dot com slash the talk show with code the talk show at checkout to get your Eero delivered with free next day shipping. You can get an Eero set up to your house by tomorrow for free just by using that code. My thanks to Eero for sponsoring the show. So we were talking about that. You were you were talking about that, whether you think it was a long time from the original Mac to Netscape. I think it was a long time in my mind because to me, those early Macs in that 1984, 85, I didn't see, I forget how old I was when I first saw a Mac, but probably not until like 86, 87, maybe in school. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'd read about it. And if, this is also, this is so bizarre that I felt like when I did first get my hands on one, I felt a lot more familiar than I had any right to be because I had vacuumed issues of like Macworld magazine into my head without ever having seen a Macintosh, even in like a store. Because but it, that's pretty normal, right? right? I think I think the 80s in context, not just for computers, but everything, right? Like you, you would sort of vicariously get something through a magazine or through reading the newspaper. And that was your only consumption of it, right? right. So if we, you know, you don't have a DVR, let alone video on demand or whatever, um, then you either watch the TV show live or you would read a magazine writing about a TV show that had happened in the past that you could never see again, right? And so, <laughs> right, like, this is right. your only this is your only <laughs> lens on, on culture. And I remember very distinctly, like, I was a kid and we went for a good while, we visited India and, like, you know, totally offline and no electricity and no running water. You come back and just reading magazines, be like, I wonder what happened in these interceding months in the world. Like, and <laughs> the world for me was, you know, what, what's the latest Michael Jackson video or what, you know, whatever. What's, 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 ha- you know, what was this movie Top Gun about? And, and that was it. And so, like, you could consume all of culture this way. And, com- and computers were no different because it was, that was the way to find out, uh, you know, again, no app store. Uh, there's there's software and you should try it. And a reviewer has told you authoritatively, this is what you do. So that was, I think, a completely reasonable way to f- form an opinion of and get familiar with a, a, a computer, any kind of technology. And I, I definitely, I mean, I read, I remember reading the manual to the Commodore 64 before we had one. We had a VIC-20 mm-hmm. and we went to, they had computer clubs back in the day and we would meet in some like community center room at the mall and there were guys that had uh, Commodore 64s, which were then new, and I didn't have one. And they were like, oh, we got an extra manual. You could buy a manual. And it was probably like $4 or something. And they were big. You know, computer manuals were like an inch, two inches thick. And I, would, I read it. I didn't have the computer it was for. Because right. <laughs> you're like, this is, this is fan fiction about a, a device I would like to own someday. <laughs> That's, that was me. So yeah. <laughs> I've told this story before, but it's so good and so informative that I feel like I cannot tell it enough. I didn't own a personal computer growing up because, and I had a lot of friends who had trouble getting one too. And all of my friends, the basic story was that their parents didn't want to spend all that money on a computer and you're not going to, you're never going to use it or you're only going to use it for games. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. my parents, oh, yeah. my parents' uh, argument was if we buy you a computer, you're never going to leave the house. <laughs> and they were right. And they were right. Like, it's very, it is. <laughs> and, and it was so maddening because I'm like, 
I cannot believe that this is the reason you won't buy me this thing that I desperately want is that you think I'll use it too much. Yes, that's exactly right. And in hindsight, I don't know. Like there was a long time where I was very angry about this. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe and not. that and that continues to this point. But we did have, you know, we had an Atari twenty six hundred. It wasn't like yeah. we were a, a Luddite family. You know, we were. Uh, uh, you know, we had the 2600, which I loved and played obsessively, and I had access to computers at schools. Um, uh, but it, there was also this huge divide, even at the time. Like the 2600, I think, was like maybe like a hundred bucks, a hundred twenty bucks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was like famously eighty nine dollars. Uh, I think was their big price cut for like Christmas some year or something. You know, and, and in a way that it hasn't changed. You know. 25 or more, I guess, right? It's yeah, almost 40, 40 years. years later. The games were expensive. The cartridges were very expensive mm-hmm. relative to the cost of the game. And then towards in the, at the tail end of, of the 2600 era, like at the, you know, at the time when like a million ET cartridges were being secretly <laughs> buried in the ground, dumped, <laughs> dumped in a hole in the ground somewhere, just yeah. buried in a ravine. Uh, like, other companies had backwards engineered the format and you could get like off brand Atari games from a company you'd never heard of for $5. And it would be like, did you have Boscovs? I know you're from Pennsylvania. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. 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 I grew up outside of Harrisburg and we definitely, yeah, yeah. Boscovs. So, so sure. They had the clearance bin and they had to like, yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the, the generic uh, store brand right. uh, Atari card. Yeah. So uh, Boscov started in Reading, Pennsylvania, where I'm from. So we we had like we had like four the Bos- pride of Reading. Yeah, the pride of Reading. We had <laughs> four Boscovs. A- Amy's grandmother uh, knew Albert Boscov. Uh, it had not occurred to me that, of course, there would be a Boskov family. Oh yeah, Albert Boskov. Yeah, <laughs> sure. Yeah, and he's exactly yeah. he's exactly what you think. He's you know he was like a I, I don't know if he was from Russia exactly, but he was an Im- the immigrant. Yeah, he was an immigrant store and, and started a store yeah. and and employed half. And then them. Amazon killed it. Yeah, <laughs> but <laughs> that's that's the American the American dream. But Boskov's. I mean, again, it's like there's there's a very small segment of the audience who's like screaming like Yeah, Boskov's. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> And everybody else Hicks, is like what? there used to be a department store. It's a department yeah. store. Boscov's is still around. I don't I think I'm sure it's a shell of its former self. But Boscov's was mm-hmm. a weird department store where they were I how would you describe it? It 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 wasn't a discount store. It wasn't No, it was it was actually I think it was supposed to be like a sort of a little bit of prestige premium. It wasn't quite like Macy's or whatever, right. but it was trying to be it, it, you know, I, I think Central Pennsylvania did not lend itself to Macy's for a lot of reasons, yeah, it, culturally and economically. But they were like aspirational, and they were early on. We're going to have technology. Yeah. We're going to have, uh, you know, at that time it was component stereos and hi-fi yeah. and whatever. Uh, but then definitely, yeah, they had a computer section. Yeah, and they, you know, I'm going to say it was like roughly JC. It was regional, but like JC Penney's tier prestige wise, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, but also had weird stuff like their toy department was at least ours was massive compared to what Mm -hmm. you would expect at a store. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I got all my transformers. Yeah. And they had Atari cartridges at the tail end that didn't even come in a box. They were in, um, like, just like a sandwich bag. You had loose cartridges? Yeah, well, they were in a... That sounds very illicit. They were in a sandwich bag with like a piece what? of cardboard on top stapled and wow. then just hung on a pegboard. 
you know. I, that sounds bootleg. That sounds like you had like a that's like yeah, drug dealer yeah, game cartridges. Maybe, but you could get them cheap and they and they definitely, you know, I think there was something fishy, but that was exciting, right? That's Wow, yeah, yeah. yeah. No, that sounds I mean, yeah, that, that's so scandalous. It would feel like you're getting away with something. I mean, this is what I love is like the idea and and this sort of goes to the App Store point is like software was a physical thing in our lives. Right. right? It was a box on the software. It was apparently a baggie at the store. A baggie. But yeah. but that which is that's uh, that is so my my gosh, that's it's depraved. I like. I just. I love how it, like that. Definitely feels like the kid at school in the corner of the playground, like opens up his coat and slides out a, a video game cartridge, and like don't tell anybody. Like that seems like how you're getting your cartridges. But then you talked about like ET, and so this is this is a famous story. People can Google it. But like they 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 over they over created. They built. They made too many of these cartridges for this game that wasn't very good, and and then they buried them in the desert. I think The Verge did a story on this, and and. The thing I love about this is imagine you make an app and it doesn't succeed and lots of them don't. And you have to live with, they will physically take the remains of your app and bury it in the desert. <laughs> like that's so much more final than like, than just the, like you check your app sales charts and oh, I only moved three copies today. And I, I guess I'm not going to make a go of this. Like, like what, what, like such a definitive failure where they're like, we have to hide your shame in a hole in the ground. And but in a sense, though, it, yeah, that's interesting, right? Like, wouldn't it be? Wouldn't you feel better if like movable type four or five was somewhere <laughs> in the you know, and there were a million copies in yeah. the desert? There was something, you know what I mean? Yeah, it, yeah, yeah. I mean, the stuff that I was doing like fifteen twenty years ago, there's some tangible artifacts of, and it's like it's but it's like swag, like it's like oh, we had a USB memory stick or something, or we had a T-shirt or something, right? But 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 I definitely, you know, I still hold on to it when when um, at Glitch we we you know we redid our office and and we had a conference room and I put up we have a box of uh, the original um, HyperCard which was a huge influence on Glitch. We have the original Windows ninety five CD ROM. We have uh, Mist on CD ROM, like all these different sort of classic Lotus one two three. You know, Physicalc. Uh, what I would think of as sort of the canon of software, and I got the physical copies. And then I, I wanted one of the later ones I wanted to add was uh, Portal, the, the video mm-hmm. game. Um, you know, from Valve. And because um, I, I and I was like, oh, you know, like can we can we get because it got most of the stuff off of eBay, and it's actually it's actually not it is not at all expensive to collect vintage software, as it turns out. <laughs> um, and and our our you know my coworker was like, oh, we can't get Portal. And I was like, oh, why not? Like, why don't we? And, and he's like, it was never released on a CD in a box. Like, but it was, had to be like orange. He's like, there's a bundle with like 10 other games, like in a clearance bin. But like, there is no package for it. And I was like, oh, that must have been just after the end. And obviously the company that makes Steam is going to be, you know, the one that's going to be the first to move to digital. But it, but it was such a, I was like, oh, that's, that's, that's first step into too late for there being a physical artifact to, to software. Because I loved you know, I was that kid when, as a music fan, reading the liner notes on every album, and 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 I loved that feel with software. Like on the you know the old Microsoft packages, they would have the floppy disks in a in a little plastic bag that had like a perforation on it that was incredibly satisfying. Mm. Like it, it got the feel that like unboxing something really great does. You know, these days where they really, I don't think it was intentional back then, but they just had gotten this like the tactile feel of what you do to to, re, to uh, unleash this product was really gratifying. And, and, and that was such an interesting thing because that, that obviously was a lost art by the time it was just like, we'll throw a CD in a regular jewel case or evidently throw a cartridge in a baggie. Yeah. It was just sort of like, well, we have to give it to you on a disc because there's no other way to deliver this many, 
you know, what are you going to do? Suck this down on a 56 K modem. So <laughs> right. we have to, three give you, we have to give you a couple of discs. Here you go. You know, they're, and they're just the pure, you know, um, well, my, my Boscov story is this, is that, uh, so we had, we were a 2600 family. I, I had friends with Apple twos. Our school had Apple twos. I was very familiar with the Apple two platform and that's desperately what I wanted, but I had friends with Commodores, uh, I had friends mm-hmm. with, I mean, and again, the idea that there was a, it just seems so natural that there were so many completely rival computing platforms, Texas instruments, yeah. the, the trash. Agent, oh yeah. Um, you know, and in fact, it was not likely you would know somebody else with the same system as you. Like right. I had one friend who had a Commodore, and everybody else was, as you said, they, there was a TI-99 4A, and there was an Apple II, and it was like you had some stuff in common, but no interoperability whatsoever. Other than basic, right? Is that you yeah. could get like a Microsoft magazine, basic. you could get a, a, a magazine with a basic program you could type in, and it would probably work exactly as is on like a Commodore and an Apple, and you didn't have to be a programming whiz to figure out if there was like maybe one thing that, you know, you had to change like, Oh, that, you know, but for yeah. the most part it was the same, but I had a piece I was working on comparing today's app stores to what, you know, the sort of the, the experience was in 1984 say, and, and the idea of get in, uh, get in your parents' car, right? ride to a, a bookstore, which is a thing, go to the newsstand Go through the newsstand and find the magazine for your type of computer because yep. there was a different variant, right? <laughs> then read the articles, flip to the back, and pages and pages and pages of essentially machine code, and then transcribe it with no errors, typing in multiple pages of completely abstract code <laughs> for usually a few days, and then compile and it's a bug. It's wrong. You type <laughs> something wrong. Then spend a weekend debugging it. Then get it all working. And if the, all that works, all that like the, the, that week of prep that you had spent works, you get this this little game, little app, and you're like, okay, that's fine. That's it. Like that's it. And yeah. it's impossible. Like it is. Absur- you would not believe it if it hadn't happened. Like yeah. it is absurd to believe. And, and then and then and the you know just every aspect of that is this like completely tenuous, fragile thing that you're just like, please let this work. Please let this work. Because <laughs> the air. Right. And sometimes you could get a clear, uh, you might get a clear error, like syntax error line 40, you know. Oh, yeah. That was a blessing. S- sometimes. Yeah, but, but you could just get something just, just plain dead silence. Yeah. Just, I don't know what happened. The computer's just, like, I don't no. know. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I have yeah. no idea where it went wrong. And it's, <laughs> you just typed in three pages of stuff and you've just got to kind of eyeball yeah. it between this screen in front of you and a magazine and, um, yeah, it's but, like no. I think I'm going to go back to getting hit by my older brother. That was better. Right, but the, like, this is this is bad. The, the 1984 Mac, which of course I wanted, but which I just wanted to see even was twenty five yeah. twenty five hundred dollars in 1984 dollars, which is mm-hmm. like a million dollars in today's dollars. Yeah, I'm no inflation calculator, but that sounds. They right. didn't sell things like that at Boscov's. You couldn't go. It wasn't a consumer. No, device. no, that was a special thing, right? And yeah. but they did have stuff at Boscov's, like uh, other rival com- uh, video home computer things, like um, mm-hmm. you know the Coleco uh, Vision or uh, Intellivision. Yeah. My uncle had, and there was a, there was a category in between, sort of game console and and real computer, where yeah. they had like a kind of a crappy keyboard, but it would do a little bit of both. Yeah. Um, but the one I remember desperately and God, this is, and it's the black hole that like, maybe I, I might have to wait till I'm retired because if I start going down this hole now, a daring fireball will collapse on upon, on upon itself is like collecting vintage computer stuff. 
Oh um, god! But no, the one yeah. that I loved was the Vectrex. Do you remember this? That was yeah. That was a narrow. I mean, that I remember it, but it was uh, a, a visual. Uh, this makes sense. It was visually interesting. So yes. I, that 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 must have really spoken to you. I did the math, by the way. It's it's six thousand two hundred right. uh, twenty twenty dollars for an original Mac. Right. So think about that. Think about if your kid. It's enormous. Think, it's a car. Well, a car. A car would cost that. Think much about like if that. your eleven year old kid came up to you and said, "I would like a six thousand seven hundred dollar <laughs> computer." <laughs> you you got you got six thousand dollars lying around, son. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Yeah, the Vectrex, for those who don't know it, I'll put it in the show notes, but it was a self-contained, it was sort of like the Mac of video game consoles, because you had to play, it had a build, unlike everything else, it didn't hook up to your TV, because it was vector graphics. It had a screen built in. Yeah, yeah and it's yeah. a special vector graph. and if you've ever seen games like the old coin-op Star Wars game, which is my favorite of the genre, but Asteroids was a thing. Uh, and instead of pixels, big fat dots on the screen, it drew lines on the screen. And therefore, a diagonal line would be just as straight as a horizontal or vertical line, which fascinated yeah. me. And yeah. open- I mean, in retrospect, they look jaggy, but the implementation was so right. good. Right. And, and, and I think one of the other things, too, is like the aesthetics of the early mid 80s vector graphics were were the symbol of the future in a way that bitmap was not. Like right. now, retroactively... Um, the which was a little bit later, the eight bit graphics, like you know, the, the Mario, uh, you know, icon with the blocky graphics is sort of the that's the definitive uh, eight bit image, right? Is that yeah. sprite? Yeah. And but that was actually later, right? If you're in 1981, 82, 83, uh, I, I think Blade Runner sort of captures this a little bit. Certainly, obviously, in the in, in Star Wars, like in the New Hope, and uh, they have the, the vector graphics drawing of the Death Star, um, like that was what the future was. The future was this like vector outlined, maybe solid poly shaded. Tron was that too, um, and and that was like a symbol of futurism. And so I think like what you see in like your sort of graphical lines, like Vectrex was this symbol of this is future computer, not just because the screen is built in, although that obviously was also future because yeah. the Mac did that too. But like the way I think there was a visual language that showed. Uh, fluidity, like motion without jaggies, whereas everything else was blocky as hell. Yeah. Uh, so I wanted to play the Vectrex so bad, and I knew I was going to get one. There's no chance <laughs> yeah. that my parents are going to buy oh, me God. a second one. But, but Boscov's had one. They they not only sold them, they had like a counter. Uh, oh, you had a demo unit. Yeah, there was a demo unit, wow. but there, it was wow. always a kid in front of you. And I just sure, remember, yeah. I have this vivid memory of the one time there was nobody else in line behind the kid who was playing. And, and mm-hmm. so I had, and my mom was shopping for whatever. So I had a chance. If this kid in front of me would give it up, I'd have it, but mm-hmm. I had to pee. <laughs> oh, yeah. That's, you hate to, it's just, the, the flesh is weak. Right. We're mortals. So I did get to play for the first <laughs> time, but I had to give it up and then run. Run sure, to the restroom right. and sort of put a little dot in my jeans, you know, my tough skin jeans oh, before I got there, and then just wow. peed like right. peed like a racehorse. That's very evocative, John. Thank you yeah. for sharing that story. Well, that's how desperate I was. That's how desperate I was for this, you know, for a higher resolution display right. to play games on. Yeah, yeah. but for, to my mind, that that <laughs> that ten year period from the mid eighties to the mid nineties, to me, that's so long because, like, to me, those those mid eighty computers. Including the uh, the original Mac, even though the, the the interface was so new, it was so limited in terms of storage and oh yeah, RAM. I mean they really they cut every corner there, they could to get get that all together. Yeah, one hundred and twenty eight kilobytes of memory. 
mm-hmm. know, discs. Yeah, I mean, but even that, like, I, I, I was trying to explain this. I think I was saying this on Twitter the other day, but like, you know, again, the VIC-20 first computer I had, there was a Commodore computer, and this was, this was one of the very early sort of mainstream products. And it had um, essentially 5K of RAM. And I was trying to explain to somebody, a single emoji takes up 5K. Like, like, any, like a smiley that you have dropped in the end of a, an email as an emoji, that is more memory than the entire computer had. And people are like, that doesn't make any sense. Like, how would you put an, a, you know, software into that? Right. And it's like, well, that's what you have. The, there, there was a standard control in the original Mac for text edit fields. And there was an app called Simple Text, or mm-hmm. I think originally, which was first, Teach Text or Simple Text? I forget. <laughs> I, I, this I is, feel like Simple Text, but. Yeah, I, I think it was Simple it Text first, and then Teach Text was the renamed version. But it, the, the files, they, you know, and they, that was like what a README would be formatted on, you know, it would be a teach text file. And then, cause everybody had it. It was the ver you know, it was the built in text editor. 32 kilobytes was the maximum size of text, mm-hmm. uh, which was always a bit of a problem. You know, like you, you could, had to uh, squeeze it in there. You could squeeze it in there. Um, but you know, it, I've, I had Adam Engst, who, who publisher of, of tidbits on, uh, and for a while, the, the size of an episode uh, or an issue of tidbits in the early days was still limited to 32 kilobytes because you know, that it needed to to be able to open it up, had to be able to open it up uh, or view it in a text field. Um, It's just, it it was sort of like those early ones. They were your mind. You couldn't, your mind can't hold 128 kilobytes of, of ones and zeros, but you can almost imagine it, right? It was like you could, your, yeah. your human mind could see it and sort of hold the scope of it. And by the mid nineties, computers were so powerful and you could have so many things running at once with the megabytes of Ram that you could have installed. And the, 17 inch displays we had at this college newspaper, which were huge and you could see so much at once. And it just seemed so much more expansive than your mind, right? Like it yeah. seemed yeah. like, I, I do think your, your, your mental capacity is this thing that in the changeover from, I think, you know, eighties computers feel a little bit analog still. Yeah. Right. And, and, and nineties computers don't. And I think, and I think what changed in that moment is obviously the, you know, graphics interfaces come in and all those kind of things, but also, if, if you're a coder, the thing you're always trying to do is preserve state, stay in the flow. You're keeping the the whole mental model of the app in your head, basically. And when you had such limited storage and capacity and capability, you could you could pretty reasonably keep everything that was in the computer's mind in your mind, right? You know, and then all of a sudden, sort of two things happen simultaneously. One, obviously, capacity and Moore's law and all that kind of stuff goes up really quickly. But also, it's connected to everything else in the world. So all of a sudden, any information can come in, right? If you're pulling things off the internet. You know the, the the nascent web. You don't know what's being rendered in your software. You don't know what's showing up on your device. Like it could be anything. It used to be whatever was on this floppy disk is what I am going to have to you know parse and handle and, and process as data. And rather, it is like arbitrary information coming from strangers on the internet is going to be the thing that I have to make software and wrap around. And that that was such a shift in the work of the programmer, the work of the creator. And, and, and I think it's actually very different then because uh, there's still this, you know, this ethos I have where like, you know, it's a glitch we make tools for people to make apps, right? And, and I always look at, um, you know, a digital audio workstation. What is somebody doing in Pro Tools or in GarageBand as an analog? Or you look at Photoshop or, or you know, Final Cut or Premiere or whatever. And, and, and those are creative tools where 
you're, you're still actually basically trying to keep the entire state of your work in your head. And for Photoshop, it's easier if it's visual. If you're doing a film, you know, in Final Cut, that's actually, that's, that's, you're, you're probably doing a scene at a time because that's yeah. about as much as you have capability for. But software went from, I think in that era before the sort of, you know, modern, what we think of as a development environment, whether it's Xcode or Visual Studio or whatever, um, you were, you were maintaining state in your head of the app that you were building of the software, the tool or whatever, the program you were building. And then there's this big, big shift sort of post rise of the web and then post rise of these, you know, what we now would call the integrated development environment, the IDEs is um, you are just handling a flow of things coming towards you. <laughs> you're almost, you're just, it's like the, 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 the space invaders coming down to you in the video game. You're just sort of fighting off yeah. whatever's coming inbound to your app. Yeah. And as a user, yeah, and it's sort of like it was a very sudden inversion of pre-network, pre-internet, or you know, and 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 the 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 funnel part of the inversion where you go from the part where you, we were desperate, where can I get more stuff from my computer? <laughs> right? I've 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 mastered everything. Oh god, yeah, 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 literally, cuz I'll go to the bookstore right. and type it in if I have to, but right. I need to get something from my computer. And I and I have all these floppy disks and I I've I know everything, I know every game, I've played every game, I know every program, I've I know every file that I've got saved because I had to make it. I've mastered everything on my computer, where can I get something more? Right? That's the the one end of this funnel where it was just just this you're alone in the desert looking for mm-hmm. s- just one new thing to put on your computer. Then there's like the BBS dial-up era where it's like all of a sudden there's a bit of community and a bit of sharing and it was such a, br- a trickle but it's there. But what a brief era in hindsight, right? It, yeah. It's so- yeah, it was so obviously transitional in retrospect. Right. But at the time it felt like the the world had opened up and I think I think there I mean this is the thing that connectivity and the internet did to every discipline over and over and over as so we went from scarcity to abundance and there's this intermediate stage that again is very brief but at the time feels so eye-opening. And, and, you know, again, like I was sick of music and then like, that's, that's sort of all my, my first love, but like the, the idea of like, you had your CD collection or your record collection and you would know the album cuts you didn't even like, cause that was what you had to listen to. <laughs> so if you're like, I'm going to listen to, you know, whatever, Steely Dan, and you're like, this fourth song sucks, but I need to listen to it to get to the fifth song because we're sequentially accessing everything. So I know all the words to the song I don't even like. Right. And, and that is what happens in scarcity world. Right. Like nobody is listening through a playlist if they don't like four songs in a row on it. Now, in abundance land, because you can sort of push the button. And, like, that's music, but that was true for film. That was true. Like, you know, definitely you wore out a VHS tape of yeah. a movie you were only – it was only a B- minus to you. Yeah. Right? Because you had it. And then and then that idea with, like, what your computer could do and what you could do with to access information on your computer, the BBS era and this sort of, you know, for folks who weren't around then, like, it, it sort of flowed fairly seamlessly, I think, into the AOL or – prodigy era where there were what were called dial-up services on the, on the, on the, actually one of the things when we were talking about Windows 95, Microsoft did the Microsoft network. And, 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 you know, there were these multiple, you know, they were like TV channels. I mean, the reason today we have a cable network called MSNBC is it was launched alongside MSN, the Microsoft network. (laughs) This dial-up service was going to have a TV component. I just explained this to my son who's... (laughs) 16. I just it doesn't make any sense. Him. It doesn't make any sense. And I was like, and and lo, these many years later, they kept the name. <laughs> they kept the name. Yeah, everything's an artifact. But but it's an artifact of a mental model of a moment. You know what I mean? In 1994, it seems eminently reasonable you should have a dial-up service and a television network that have the same name. 
That makes perfect sense to you. Yeah. You know what I mean? Because you don't know how we're going to navigate from the old world to the new. Yeah. And so you're just guessing. And, and, and I, I do think it's interesting. We have all these artifacts around us of, of, of this sort of, you know, this connection to, we can kind of tell what it's going to be like, but we don't really know. And, and I just really like that. That's so fascinating to me. And I, I think that that's actually, you know, going to the, the point about the app store, we we're still in a scarcity model of software. You're going to buy software. When we went from on a floppy disk to on a CD-ROM to maybe you download it to, uh, you know, you're probably always downloading it to, it's just a service that you connect to. You don't even pay for the service. It's just sponsored by ads. Like that whole continuum, you know, I think everything happened very, very gradually and unevenly. And so we didn't ever have this like breakthrough moment. And, and, the, and the rare exception is, you know, the app store coming out where it was so obviously sort of punctuated. And, you know, I don't know if you want to jump into that, but I, I there's so many thoughts I have about. No, not yet. Not yet. Hold it. Hold yeah, it. Yeah. Hold it. Yeah. Before <laughs> I'll just say this. I think that with the, the 84 to 94 decade, it was really, and, and maybe it's a, I'm a little biased. Well, I, maybe not, but I think it was really a, a business transformation, right? It was work. That oh, was yeah, yeah, yeah. changed yeah, so yeah. quickly. It was totally and yeah. and in my that's who was buying. There wasn't there, like the home market in, in total was nothing compared to what com- like companies were all in. They were like, we have to have spreadsheets. The, the only we have to have word processors. Right. I, I I love those early stories. Like talk, you know, when you hear like the story of Dan uh, Bricklin uh, talking mm-hmm. about oh, yeah. the first time. You know, he had the idea for. Um, Visicalc. Visicalc. Jeez, uh, I was going to call it one, two, three, and that's you know, I was like, no, one, two, three is way too new. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Visicalc. Yeah, and I later. remember the story—the story he tells of showing it to an accountant, and the accountant mm-hmm. was just like, "You have no idea, you know, this—you uh, just turned my forty-hour week into like an hour." He goes, "Are yeah. you serious?" And he's like, "Let me, t- you know, it, it's like this. All I do is add these numbers up." And he's like, "Oh, yeah. really?" Um, yeah, it's unfathomable the increase in productivity and how quickly everybody embraced it. And and my perspective, all I've ever done professionally before I did Daring Fireball is I made websites and which of course didn't exist, couldn't have existed pre computer. I, I got paid yeah. to make websites and I did graphic design. And the graphic design work I did a lot in the late '90s, you know, typically wound up in print. But none of it. I never once. I graduated college in 1996, and and especially in the four years from 96 to around 2000, I did an awful lot of freelance work, graphic design, professionally, you know, and 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 doing a lot of it, like uh, uh, all of it, really, as a freelancer, going into different companies. I never once, in hindsight, I, I realized this. I never once encountered pre Quark Express, Illustrator, Photoshop, graphic design. You know, like physical, physical copy. Never, never. Yeah, it just never. And yeah. in, in the student newspaper where I learned all this at Drexel, by you know when I first got there at ninety two, ninety three, was all Quark, Illustrator, Photoshop, uh, print out to laser printer, and just you know we did send. We didn't send even when I left in ninety six. We didn't transfer the paper to the printer who printed the newspaper digitally. We did print out you know, right, tabloid right. sized things and pasteboard them up and hand them to the printer. And then they photo scan them in. Right. So you had an analog output, analog output, but, uh, 
everything else was digital. And I, in my professional life, I never once encountered it. And, and in hindsight, that's only, you know, the Macintosh only came out in 1984 and like the laser writer was only 86. So like yeah. the, you know, the 84 to 86 doesn't even count for revolutionizing the graphic design industry. Cause it, what didn't happen yet. Right. So yeah. in like six but years, you were also early on that. You were early to have a fully digital career, right? Yeah. You had peers that did do, you know, paste up work and, and physical print work. Right. Right. And, and, and I sort of had the same experience where like my first job and then later my first company were like basically doing technology for construction companies. And then there were some, exactly what you said, they had gone early to getting an IBM PC and they had, you know, whatever the spreadsheets were, Lotus one, two, three. And, um, and, and then you would, you know, in that era, it was like, okay, well, we're going to move to windows and we're going to upgrade to windows and that's going to be a new computer and a new printer and all that kind of stuff. Um, but, but I definitely had, I mean, this is actually, this is, this is one of those things where I tell people and they just don't believe me, but like, so I had um, Mennonite uh, com- uh, companies, uh, work- people who were, were our clients and I sold computers to Mennonites and, and for uh, people who are not in those communities, Mennonites, I think for outsiders are indistinguishable from Amish. Yeah. Uh, they, they wear the bonnets and, and, and definitely we had, you know, folks that um, had uh, the buggies and, and, and all that kind of stuff. They are plain folk. Um, and, but, but Mennonites are a little more willing to engage with, uh, the outside world, uh, in those regards than, than Amish folks are. But anyway, the first time I ever, this is a true story. The first time I ever in person saw a original, uh, Mac, the 128K Mac, uh, was on the desk of a Mennonite construction company, uh, in Lancaster County, Pennsylvania. <laughs> and, and they had bought one when it was new and they had had it all the way into what, by then, that point it must have been 91, 92. It was old. But they're like, well, it still works. So we're not going to get rid of it. You know, they they are plain folks. They don't, they don't they don't get rid of an implement that still works, and the Mac still worked. Um, and and it was so instructive because, like, I mean, they were a very extreme example. But a lot of these people were going from handwritten spreadsheets, literally like boxes on a piece of paper, to a computer. And and that idea of like that transformation of your life, where to the point about the accountant talking to Dan Bricklin when he invents the spreadsheet you are going to go from this being all you do all day to a trivial task that a computer can do for you. I think it's, it's almost impossible to overstate and how jarring it must've been. Now, even if you're not like Amish or near Amish, like if you are just a regular person growing up in society, you, you, I think there's such anxiety around it. And I think that's actually the point about like, while you're talking about your parents being like, we don't want you to get a computer. You're going to spend all day with it. And that's different than if I said, I wanted a guitar, my parents would not have said, Oh, you're right. going to spend all day inside on the guitar because you—that's—that's that's an instrument. That is expression. Right. That is, you know, that is an art form. And 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 the reason I think that there was a really common attitude in those eras, and it's not so much true now because it would be absurd to be like, "Don't be on your phone," but but that you would say, "I don't want you to spend all day on the computer." Was there was a skepticism about technology as a whole, right? And like I said, this is the era of Blade Runner, but it's also. Uh, war games, Matthew Broderick film, where he starts like a nuclear war with his home computer. <laughs> shall right? we, and, shall and we play a game? Exactly. Right. And, and so like, there's this cultural anxiety about what are these machines doing to us? Are we losing our souls? Which seems quaint now, right? Because right. like, they were right, actually, about a lot of their concerns. There are books written in like 82, 83, and I'm forgetting the name of one of them, but I'll send you it for the show notes if I can remember. But, but it was fairly fairly prominent book it was like one of those like you know the the thinkers of the time are writing about you know obviously i was like 
child. So I wasn't thinking about the book, but I went back and looked at it and they're talking about, you know, this is going to enable mass surveillance and this is going to, you know, uh, displace people's jobs and it's going to cause all these things that have come to pass. And, and so I think a lot of, a lot of people had a skepticism about personal computers that was also born of, uh, keep in mind at that point, recent history, mainframes had come from a lot of military research. The country was still processing Vietnam and Watergate and all this kind of stuff. And so many, you know, whether it's jobs, gates, like all those early guys, they were, you know, very unapologetically long haired hippies and very much like what was then called counterculture and saw themselves as reacting to that. And I think that still informs, like there's this back and forth of that um, ambivalence about the, the role of computers and where they came from and what they were going to do to people um, that I think has gotten erased because I think we have this sort of, warm, fuzzy nostalgia view of a lot of it. Like I think, you know, there's like the halt and catch fire version. Right. And then there's like sort of kitschy eighties, like I said, the eight bit graphics and a, a Mario Sprite. Um, but the idea that there was actually a reckoning culturally with what are these things going to do to our lives. And then that repeated with the internet, right. With cyber crime and like the sort of cyber era, you know, uh, early, <laughs> when, early 90s, yeah, like, when, when cyber was an actively used prefix. Yes, exactly. Right. When people would unironically talk about something being cyber. <laughs> the cyber um, era. They're, 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 yeah, that's what we should call it. <laughs> right. It's very clear. You know what I mean? And, yeah. and you know, and Wired Magazine comes out. And, and, and interestingly, the thing how Wired or whatever was the like techno-utopianism. Oh, this is going right. to free us all. We will be free from the shackles. And it's funny because that's this, also this very counterculture, you know, Timothy Leary. We're going to – this. You know, computers are LSD kind of thing. Yeah. Let's talk Windows 95, 25 years of Windows 95. Mm -hmm. And it is – It's a fine version of Windows. You know, uh, people lined up to buy it. It was an operating system. (laughs) They they did. (laughs) It's so weird. That's the weirdest thing. Like if you think about that retrospectively, you're like, well, what does it do? Well, it lets your other software do stuff. Right. How do you sell that product? People used to uh, people used to line up for lots of things. This is another thing that, that definitely dates us. Uh, but like the concert scarcity. tickets, you know, oh, concert, God, yes. right? You yeah. had to. The only way to get good. I slept in a parking lot for Janet Jackson tickets. Yeah, it was I, worth it. I was a regular at the Ticketmaster uh, in my college years over at thirty something in Lancaster in Philly. There was a Ticketmaster mm-hmm. right next to the uh, the Chili's. Yeah, yeah, I, I know, I, yeah, I know that place. I think that I think the Chili's is a gentleman's club now. I'm not sure, but uh, that but there was, right. There was a Ticketmaster, and and when certain acts were coming to town, you'd have to, you know, maybe not overnight, but you'd definitely, you know, yeah. if the tickets went on sale at uh, nine, you'd have to get there at like four or five, yeah, in get, the morning, yeah, you'd go early, yeah. yeah. But if it was a big show, I mean, again, I grew up in the sticks, and so like if it was a big show, you'd be you'd be out there because it was like one. One ticket yeah. window yeah. for for all these things, and so I think, but I think that sense of like scarcity is such an interesting thing. And then, and then, you know, context wise for Windows ninety five, it's like so I was I, I had had my first company by then, and and people were you know they were all on Windows, like that was just what you used at work then, unless you were a graphic designer, basically. Um, and and so they were and they were doing spreadsheets and stuff. So you were you know you were going to splurge for a Mac that was that was perceived as much more expensive at the time, um, and. It was wild because, you know, it was like being a plumber, right? If your, if your printer breaks, you call the computer guy and he'll come and plug in a new printer for you. But you didn't, you didn't have an opinion about it. You didn't think about it. It was like thinking about your, you know, these are construction companies. It's like thinking about your table saw. If your saw blade breaks, you replace it. But you're not like, I can't wait for the new table saw. 
that's weird. And then, <laughs> and then, and then literally summer of 95, we had, you know, customers calling us. You would call back then and call us and be like, can we get, are you going to put windows 95 on when it comes out? <laughs> and that was such like, it was inconceivable. It was just a weird thing. I'm like, how do you even know about it? Like I know about it, but it's my job. How do yeah. you know about it? It was weird watching it remotely as a Mac user at the time. Uh, and, and what gets uh, popularized is the religious angle of it. You know, the people who were truly. Oh, yeah, know, there were partisans fighting for partisans, sure. I mean, it was like the yeah. internet is today. Yeah, it was. And, and it was an early sign of how the internet serves to polarize people very much so where and and I always had the palpable sense and I'm not trying to say that I'm any kind of sociological genius uh, I I just think I'm humane and empathetic enough that it and my interests uh, my parents worries be damned my interests I you know have been outside the computer you know I played sports and I liked go I just mentioned I did go to concerts <laughs> You know, I had real life. <laughs> I have seen the outdoors, mother. Yeah, I have yeah. seen the outdoors. Uh, uh, I never looked like I needed to to get, hit the sun to get some vitamin D. You know, it wasn't like you mm-hmm. know come out and I, like I was in a bunker. <laughs> um, but it always seemed so obvious to me in the Usenet era that. My God, if we could just get these same people in a room together, it wouldn't be like this. Like, no, and, no. And, and, and you could see that they had dehumanized each other because yeah. they were interacting through through these these platforms, right? And yeah. at that era, I remember very distinctly uh, CompuServe. So this was another one of these dial-up services like AOL or whatever. It was one of the earlier ones. And it was probably one of the first places. And actually, that's where the um, the GIF was invented. Yep. Um, was 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 for animation on that platform. Yep. And 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 there was a very um, Really early, it was like the prototype of today's online battles and social media, right? And, and and the amazing thing about it was it would happen over anything. Like operating systems were actually, I think, one of the areas where it became a really big conversation because everybody had one, very obviously then. And also, if you were using technology at that point, you had to have been an enthusiast. There was no casual computer user right. on CompuServe. Right. Or on AOL, because you had to have done the work to get connected in the first place, which was hard as hell. You had to buy a modem and hook it up and do all this stuff, right? And so it became a part of your identity. You were a person that liked computers. And being a person that liked computers was not cool at all. No. I think it's like so hard for people to understand. <laughs> like now, you know, Jack Dorsey was on a yacht with Beyonce and Jay-Z like <laughs> two days ago. And Jack is not cool. I've known Jack for a long time. You know what I mean? And I'm like, yeah. that is wild, right? You yeah. know, like I know he's got his nose ring in now and whatever, and you know, God bless him. But like, I'm just like, it like they're nerds, right? And and so like that idea of like the biggest pop star in the world is going to hang out, or the biggest two pop stars in the world are going to hang out with a guy who made an app, like that is not in reality. And in, in, in the you know 80s and 90s computer yeah. world, even into the 2000s. And and what's wild about it too is also how arbitrary it was because this sort of, I think it it was operating systems and then the battles were video game consoles when they came out and you know, the, the PlayStation people and the Sony, you know, the, 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 you know, Sega people versus the, you know, Nintendo people. And it was like, who guys, you own all of these. Like, what do you, 
I what can't, are you talking about? I and, can't get into that because we'll get distracted, but it's, it's, I was a Sega Genesis person and I've mentioned what my opinion is. I on assumed the, on the Nintendo. I could and, tell it about you. Oh my mm-hmm. God. Do people think I'm wrong on that one? But you know, it was a much yeah. better system anyway. I, I, I believe that, that, uh, in the Bible, it says Sega does what Nintendo don't. I'm, I'm not an expert, <laughs> but that's a fair. I, uh, no, I, you know, and I, but I mean, it's so, it's like you can laugh now, but it's right. like, it was, it yeah. was the first time we were seeing the prototypes of these behaviors where I'm like, why is this guy so mad? And the the one that jumped out to me, and you'll probably remember this, but there was – so IBM was still a player back then in, in tech, and they had an operating system called OS2. Oh, yeah. And they had a new version called OS2 called OS2 Warp that came yeah. out right around the same time as Windows 95, a little before. And I am willing to believe it was technologically superior. This was what all of its – Acolytes, many acolytes told us, but they were notorious zealots, right? So it was like always it also ran. I mean, it was the smallest <laughs> of the small audience. It was maybe 5% of computers. And you had to be, I mean, that was some nerd shit. Way less like, than 5%. Really, Way less. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I'm, I'm being charitable. I don't like, yeah. they're still going to get mad at me. Like right. there were guys in my mentions in 2020 on Twitter talking to me about OS2 was better. I was like, like, sir, sir, you yeah. are probably damn near 60 years old. First of all, second of all, the war is lost. Yeah. It's been lost, you know? Yeah. And, and, and and it sounds absurd, but it's like uh, you realize that the, the sort of culture of grievance and the dehumanization of social media and the idea of, like, my product is my identity, like the thing I've purchased is who I am. Like, all those seeds were planted. And it was so fascinating because Windows 95 was that catalyst because it was culturally relevant. If it had not been, if no, if everybody ignored it or it had just been some app that you buy, um, it wouldn't have mattered. But this was such a big deal that they're talking about it on late night TV shows yeah. and people are lining up at stores. And that's so interesting because the, you know, the, I like you can always tell a lot about the culture of organizations by what they criticize, what they have contempt for, right? Like the, the, to me, the definitive Apple statement of all time is Jobs saying like Microsoft has no taste. Mm-hmm. Right, because it just sort of speaks to what they aspire to. Yeah. Right, even even though it, he said that while he was in exile, it was you know yes. it was before he came back. It was like a mid you right. know while while he was yeah. in extra you know right 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 right. He's he's still yeah. wandering in the desert at that point, but it's yeah. like it, it was it, to that point. Even at in exile, the 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 ethos and the value of what is the thing you care about is so fundamental. Yep. Right. And, 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 and even, you know, when Microsoft is in the sort of Department of Justice trial and, 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 and you know, being really, really castigated for the first time, there's this sort of derision from Gates of like, this is beneath us. Like, why are you dumb people asking mm-hmm. us questions? Like, you don't know. You, know. you don't understand computer. And that same sort of contempt. And so, like, this is really interesting thing of, like, you can really tell about, like, what the anxieties of an organization and its culture are uh, that makes technology. And, and this idea of like, you know, the IBM accolades really, really wanted to prove their operating system was technologically strong. And it's like, you know what? Nobody cares. Like that is not, nobody is, nobody is evaluating your implementation of multitasking as a way of judging what product they're going to use. And that still bothered the tech. It still does. Yeah. Right, so there was a oh, real operating system has to be a command line, or a real operating system has to have these technical constraints. And the idea that the aesthetics and the brand and the marketing and the cultural positioning and the social value of software, let alone operating systems, the most abstract software, is going to be this decision made because the box is pretty and has clouds on it. Like that, that was such anathema to 
a prior, you know, culture of computing. And it was what it took to be to make, you know, really break to mainstream. And yeah. also the thing that I think they're still resentful of. Yeah. Um, my favorite, one of my favorite windows 95 stories. And, and it, and it speaks to that bridge, uh, the early outreach of the computer industry starting to touch mainstream culture. Um, so you mentioned Jack Dorsey just two days ago, was hanging out with Beyonce. Um, <laughs> And that's just, we just don't it's even think about absurd. it. So 1995, uh, the Rolling Stones had never licensed any of their music to anybody to use mm-hmm. in a commercial. And Mick never. Jagger, Mick Jagger went to business school and, and always in his, you know, one of the reasons mm-hmm. the Stones are massively, massively rich and, and didn't, and never got into disputes like the Beatles have with the ownership of their libraries. They were better business people because Mick was a better business person. I don't think Keith yes. is. <laughs> <laughs> well, so Mick always handled stuff. Keith like Richards this. with like the green accountant's shade on, you know, sitting yeah. at the brass lamp. I don't know the books. <laughs> so I don't know what the number is, but Mick's uh, standard answer for twenty some years, whenever anybody would call up and say we want to use one of your hits in a commercial, is he had this. He didn't say no. He just would throw out this ridiculous, you know, fifty million dollars or whatever. I don't mm-hmm. know what the number. It doesn't yeah. matter. But it was always like they, it was always like at least twenty times higher than they were possibly thinking it would cost and then they would just hang up and they'd never go and microsoft calls up and they got the start menu for that's the it's the foundational ui element of windows 95 compared to what right, came the before signature. it's the signature thing the stones have a hit song start me up they call up they say we want it licensed start me up and mick says 40 million dollars thinking that they hang up the phone and they're just like okay where do we write the check to and and mm-hmm. he's like what <laughs> <laughs> and that's it. Was it? There was no negotiation. They're like, "Oh, is that it?" Yeah. And it just speaks yeah. to how much money Microsoft had. Yeah. Like, oh it was, god, they just like, yeah, it was nothing. And they were like, "Oh, so, that's so that's fantastic. That's perfect." All right, let me take a break. Let me just, take a break. Let's just hold right. this. We'll come back to it. We, we can't stop. But uh, please, hey, let me tell you about Honey Badger. Look, your code is going to have errors. Even code written by the most amazing developer in the world, such as you, is eventually going to have a bug. When bad things happen, it's nice to know that Honey Badger has your back. Honey Badger combines error monitoring, uptime monitoring, and cron monitoring into a single, easy-to-use platform. Honey Badger monitors and sends error alerts in real time with all the context needed to see what's causing the error. Not just that there is a problem, but what's causing it, where it's hiding in your code, so you can quickly fix it, get it back up and running and get on with your day. Their included uptime and cron monitoring also lets you know when your external services that your service relies on are having issues or your background jobs go AWOL or silently fail. The team at Honey Badger, Star, Josh, and Ben, they created a 100% bootstrapped monitoring solution. Why is this important? Self-funding means they, the team at Honey Badger, answers only to you the developer, their customers, rather than any sort of venture venture capital overlord, anything like that. They're running, they're a small team running a great service. Their customers are you. They want you to be happy. You pay them for the service. You get great service in return. It's that simple. It's a great company and they have a great service. They have a great deal too for listeners of this show. Listeners of the talk show get 30% off for six months. All you have to do is mention the talk show when you sign up for your trial, and then they will apply the discount to your account when you decide to upgrade to a paid account. No credit card requ- required. All you have to do 
is go to honeybadger.io. Go to honeybadger.io to sign up. They have a great website. It's a lot of fun, actually. Go check it out, even if, if you just want to see a fun website. Go to honeybadger.io. Not a special URL code, no special coupon code. Just start a trial. You get a, you get a free trial. And when you do upgrade, just mention the talk show. They'll ask where you heard about them. And when you mention the talk show, you get 30% off for six months. What a deal. So go check them out. My thanks to Honey Badger at honeybadger.io. All right. We were talking about Windows 95. I just mentioned this story with the Stones song getting licensed by Microsoft and how this And I, this is a thing I've like, like music finance is like an obsession of mine, like the, the economics and ownership of music. But the, the thing that's really, really interesting here, first of all, is mid 90s, you still have the idea of selling out. Right, like only a year or two before, mm. you have Kurt Cobain in Rolling Stone magazine with the T-shirt saying "Corporate music still sucks," and you know Bob Dylan very adamantly like you won't license my music for everybody. And it was a scandal only a couple of years before when the the Beatles licensed uh, Revolution for a Nike commercial. Right. People were like, oh my God, how could you? Right. How could you sully yourselves? Right. So, it, it, and it's the inverse of culture now, where it's like everybody brags about who they got the endorsement from and who's sponsoring them and what product placement they got and whatever. But like. It, it, that that cultural context is really really important because part of the reason why the Stones are in addition to you know Jagger's business acumen, part of the reason the Stones are saying you want to license their song is because the sort of '60s ethos of my this is art. How would you how would you you know how would you use this in an ad that would be beneath you, right? And um, and this is really interesting because part of the uh, myth making, the legend building around Windows ninety five at the time was they talked about licensing the song. Mm-hmm. There was this sort of meta industry thing where they said, well, we pay, you know, it must have cost $12 million, $14 million. Remember here that? And, and actually, years, years later, um, uh, the number came out was $3 million, um, which is still a boatload of money, especially, you know, at that point. But but it's not actually that wild. And it, like a, it was, I think it was a $200 million ad campaign. It's like, okay, we spent 1% of our money on a song or mm-hmm. 2%. You know, like, like that's not actually – nobody would blink at that now. But I think that they just saw where the future was going, was that you were going to have to market stuff. And I also think like one of those animating forces of Microsoft in all the way through the 90s, really until 2000 and the sort of Balmer era, uh, and, and well into that era, is their sort of resentment of Apple, right? Like we're so much bigger and we have so much money. And, you know, Apple is really on the rocks over those next couple of years after, you know, when it comes out. And, and yet Microsoft's like, but why are they cool and we're not cool? And, and I think they sort of at this moment arrive at if we spend the money and buy some friends and get a song and, and you know, at that point too, like start me up as like 14 years old. Yeah. Like that, that was clearly to my mind. I felt at the time, like I was like, I don't remember this song. I was a kid when this came out, Yeah, you know, but I was like, Oh, they had some middle-aged guy that this was like the song that was cool when he was young and they wanted to play this song. Cause he's going to be the buy buying the guy buying this. And yeah. that was like, Oh, right. And yeah, now, now I think about it. I'm like, oh, yeah, if you got a song from 14 years ago, I'm like, sure, yeah, I like this song. When this come out? You know what I mean? Like, because I'm old, you know? And I think, like, that's such a, like, that was just all that stuff was not evident at the time. I was like, this is corny. And they got these old guys up there playing the song. And they had Jay Leno, which they were thrilled about. And I was like, I didn't think he was cool. That Now we all know he's not cool. But, like, right. that was such a, like, you know, it was such an interesting thing of, like, they still didn't have taste. Yeah. But they knew how to pretend they were culturally relevant. Yeah, that's what was always the thing to me. I was always aligned with that. And, you know, again, it's like you said, like why I was attracted to the Vectrex, you know, because it was graphically uh-huh. novel. Uh, 
it wasn't the technical arguments, right? And it was like, I totally, I read, you know, the OS2 Warp magazine once and it was like, I get it. <laughs> and, you know, and I ended up graduating. Man, these guys with, were serious about it. Yeah. I ended up graduating with a degree in computer science and I can program and make stuff and I get it, but it, that, that just didn't ring my bell. You know what I mean? It wasn't mm-hmm. the thing I was There was after. no soul to it. Yeah. It was the taste thing. And that's, it, it, so the, the thing I remember about Windows 95 and, and the other thing that you have to remember about when we talk about the culture, cultural aspect of this was the way that like in a, in a group, if you're on the internet, it was Usenet. If you were on any group on AOL or CompuServe or any of these services, it doesn't matter what the group was about. If it was about quilting, if it was about the Boston Celtics, if it was about vintage Corvettes, there were groups for all of these interests, and at some point throughout the year, it would break into a Mac versus PC flame war, and it would get ugly. Hundred percent, right? Yeah, totally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All of a yeah. sudden, it's to Hat- the death. Hatfields versus McCoys, and it's like, you know, what are you talking about? And there was this weird thing where, sort of pre ninety five, pre Windows ninety five. There was a the PC enthusiasts were there was this this command line versus GUI aspect of the argument. Oh yeah, and very strongly. And clearly, that one I was like, you guys are you guys are wrong, right? There and you yeah, know, right, right. famous like, history is not on your side, right. and it's very obvious, right? And there was a Steve Jobs line about like when they first saw the the stuff at Xerox Park that was a GUI that you know it just basically oh I just instantly knew oh all computers are going to work like this we just had to figure out the right right way to do it um that was r- ridiculous but then it, it's just like anything in politics and I mean that in the lowercase p political sense of anything being political right that, yeah that people when people's minds change it happens quickly Right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I keep saying to people, and there's a tipping point. I I just keep talking to people in the context of national politics, like just for a sense. And again, we're talking the same twelve years we're talking about with the App Store. Just remember that when Barack Obama ran for president the first time, he was against legalized same-sex marriage. Yeah. Yeah. Marriage equality was a was a late right arrival. Right. Yeah. And and you know and it just seems like what that was twelve years ago that was Obama. Right. And it's like, well, it wasn't because he was opposed. It was, that was what was politically feasible. And that's how quickly public sentiment changes. That, that's an issue that doesn't even come up even in today's world. Just gone. Uh, the, the whole command line, every, you know, real computer has a command line, a real user knows how to use it. And it just went away. Windows 95 came out and, and we had it again. It speaks to what I was saying before. You were doing so much on your computer. You, you needed it. And so much of it was graphical, right? I mean, you know, mm-hmm. you're looking at pictures, you're looking at the GIFs on websites, you know, yeah, it didn't yeah. make any sense to talk about it in a command line aspect. And there was a certain segment of Mac user who, who wanted it to be a religious argument, who was like, Hey, what happened to the command line argument, guys? You know, and, and yeah. it's like, you know, you don't, it's like sort of like not knowing how to accept that you won. You know, you're the dog that yeah, caught yeah, the yeah, car. Yeah, it's, and yeah, it's, like, it's not a very, yeah, it's, it's, not, it's being a sort of winner, right? Right. And, and, and I think it's such an interesting thing too, because it was also both sides were supposing that it was about logic, right? And it wasn't. It was like asserting identity right. and asserting belonging and saying you're part of a community by what you reject. Like what you are not is what defines you in these online communities. And this is still the issue. Like this is still the issue, right? Is everybody is 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 really sort of saying like I have to prove I am not part of outgroup, um, because 
that is what, well, you know, we didn't have the metrics back then, but that's what drives engagement. That is what's going to get a response. That's how we're going to form our, our identity with each other. And I do think it was about, um, you know, in that era, everybody had a handle online. They didn't have their real name. Right. Yeah. And so you would, you know, you would be whatever Mac, Mac fan 52. Right? right. And, and so that you were choosing how you're going to represent yourself to, to people. And, and, and the only way you could do it was through, uh, increasing the emotional tenor, uh, you know, uh, of what's going on. And, and, it, and it's so weird because that was also the moment when we had, you know, civilians coming in and getting technology. They were like, I heard about a Pentium. I heard about a Windows 95. I just saw the Netscape IPO and I realized the internet must be something. Like, this is all in a moment, right? Like, the Pentium bug is early 95. Netscape IPO is the f- first or second week of August of 95. Windows 95 comes out the third week of or, you know, end of August of, of, of 95, like all of a sudden a person who is not interested in computers is like, I don't need to know that, or that's not part of my job, or I'm not going to spend $2,000 to have one at home is like, I am missing something and I better get it. And I better, and you know, a year later, AOL goes, they've already started to send out the discs and stuff, but like, you know, they, they go with unlimited, you know, internet access a, a year later. Um, all of a sudden, people are like, you know, I, I got to get on. I got to get in. And, and they're running right into that first wave of, of computer users, tech users saying, like, we have figured out that us fighting with each other about things that mean nothing right. is what we're going to use this, this platform for. And it, isn't it funny how we, it's certain of these things come around, you know, and kind of do apply however antiquated they are. Like, yeah. And yeah. you got to give the, the analogies are there. Right. But like with AOL, so AOL always gets a bad rap in hindsight. It wasn't great. It was, it didn't have taste. It was technically limited. It's, it, mm-hmm. you know, but, but it was the, good at some stuff. Well, but the, and the huge foresight, and it was easy for someone like me who was in college at the time and had access to real Unix systems that I could tell that into to get internet access and then use, <laughs> you know, things that transformed a terminal connection into a IP connection. You know, it was like IP over, <laughs> over telnet. Yeah, 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 yeah. Right, right. <laughs> uh, it was easy I mean, for me is, to list a tin can string down on AOL. The internet. Right. But that, that, breakthrough you have to remember that at the time all the online services would bill by the hour like the way that yeah. long distance okay. phone calls worked at the time and it was like you could see so there's a a bean counters perspective where it's like of course we're going to bill by the hour this thing is addictive people love it and we're making a mint by charging by the hour and the breakthrough that AOL had of we're just going to charge you uh, some reasonable amount per month and you can just use it as often as your fellow family members will let you hog the phone. <laughs> right? Yeah. yeah. I mean it was radical and brave, right? Because it is foregoing, you know, revenues, but also it is uh, enabling something horizontally, right? There's a sort of democratization to that. And and I think that was actually one of the reasons that like tech insiders had been derisive of AOL. They, 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 there's a phrase right. that used to be used all the time then on Usenet of the September that never ended, which is alluding to September is when students would come back to universities and a bunch of new people would come onto the internet and they didn't know the norms. And so they were mm-hmm. frustrated by that. And then AOL being like <laughs> the equivalent of those people all the time, September that never ended. And, and what it was, was saying, we don't like these new people. Right. They don't, they aren't us. They aren't the tech experts, tech insiders. And, and I always really hated that. I, right. I always was like, we, we did, isn't this why we're doing this? Didn't we want to give 
this power and this technology to everybody. And, and I mean, this echoes with me. This is the experience I had in Silicon Valley where I was like, aren't we trying to build the social networks for everybody that everybody can be on them and not be <laughs> harassed and, 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 and have their lives ruined or whatever else. And, and it was like, no, they really were like, this is for us. This is our playhouse. And I think that, that, that fundamental pattern keeps playing out over and over and over, which is like, do do we care about the overall experience and the design, or is it only the pure, narrow definition of this kind of technology right. is what defines merit? I, I've always thought that, and I, I was always, and again, I'm not trying to retroactively claim to be more empathetic than I was <laughs> as a 20-year-old. I was a jerk in a lot of ways, That and people are like, was a jerk? And it's like, yeah, I probably still <laughs> am. But I was more of a jerk. I was a lot more of a jerk, and I was cocky. But I was never as like anti uh, let those newbies in and let the AOL people in as to me, it was always more, doesn't this just show how broken the system is? Like it just shows yes, that this, yeah. these systems weren't built for this. And think about just the simple fact of email. And we're literally, it's the, it's the social network that will outlive us all. It's the cockroach of social networks. But the fundamental yeah. of idea, idea of once you have an email address Anybody anywhere can send you email and the marginal cost of sending it is literally zero. I mean, I mean, as close to zero as you can possibly get. It's like the power to, you know, keep the computer on that's chunking out the spam. Like if you, you know, and the real world analogies work. Like if physical printed mail had that, if you got as much junk mail in through your door as you get spam, Oh my god. It's ridiculous. And <laughs> and there's no possibility in the real world of a spam filter, right? So just like go into your email program and look at your junk mailbox and look at how many mails, you know, you don't even have to look at every day. Imagine if they were coming in through your door every day. But that's the way the system was made because it never even occurred to anybody when they made the email system that anybody would abuse it. You know, it just yeah, was a yeah, poorly designed yeah. system. And, and that's and, sort of it is like that idea of like the assumptions are baked into the technology at such a deep level. Right and who it's for, who was using it, what they right. anticipated, and 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 you know I think of you know a generation later when we were building early social platforms, all the mistakes we made were the same thing of just conceiving like how many people could possibly use this yeah. and what are they going to use it for, and you don't know what you don't know. Yeah. And, you know, and again, we did, we made this, you know, I, I say we, I never had comments on my <laughs> site because <laughs> I kind of saw it. <laughs> you got it right. Yeah. Uh, but it well, was, but, you, know, you know, that's actually a great example, right? Like I did for a long time and it was um, this very optimistic. Well, I still have friends that I made that way. Right. There are people that were at my wedding. There were people, there are people that have been there for me and the hardest parts of my life that I know because of the comments on my site. Right. right? And so like, there was a place to make a connection if you were going to put in the work. And that was sort of the other part was like, we're like, well, who would have a website and not moderate the comments? That would be wrong. Right. You know what I mean? Like, like that naive, that was actually the part, that was the part where we fell down. It wasn't like, oh, put a comment box on your website is a bad idea. It was, you know, I think the choice you always made. And I remember this from back in the day. You're like, I don't want to deal with that. Yes. You know what right. I mean? And I'm like, and I'm like, that makes perfect sense. That is a reasonable choice. But the idea that you would say, I don't want to deal with that and I'm going to have it was right. not a thing that we anticipated. Like right. that, that was one where it's like, who on earth would do that? Who would say, I don't want to be responsible <laughs> for what I'm putting out in the world and I would like to have it. Like that right. seemed so irrational, let alone that every newspaper in the country would do it. Right. Like that was, that was, that was unimaginable. I was like, that's so stupid. Obviously nobody would ever do that. And right. everybody did it. 
Yeah, it was, and it was such. Again, we could do a whole nostalgic show, but it, yeah. there, was, there was yeah. in the early era of newspapers going online, they would just have open comments on every article. Why was just yeah. any anybody you just type type your name and you you know they'd ask for an email, never verified it, and and you'd type whatever your comment is, and every <laughs> news article you read on any topic just had whoever wanted to commenting below it, and they would just put them in there and uh, ignoring totally anonymously. Ignoring automated spam, it was just you know the the level of crack pottery that you would <laughs> think it might be. Yeah, it was, and, and, and I think that's sort of this, this recurring thing where like that caused real harm because we didn't anticipate the abuse of the system, right? And 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 there's this tension that comes, and I think this goes to the point about sort of Windows ninety five everything. There's this back and forth around democratization of technology, along with enabling new forms of abuse, misuse, or manipulation. And they go hand in hand every time. Like there's always that cycle. And it was, I mean, people were worried about this in the rise of desktop publishing. You talk about that. I was like, well, if anybody can print a pamphlet, you know, if, if anybody can make something that looks professionally designed, how are we going to know it's real information? I was like, you never did. But that was a real concern that was raised. Yeah. Right? It's like a laser print is going to make it look official. You know, it's like, yeah. yeah. And I was like, great. Then my band is going to look like it's putting on a real show. Right. You know, but they were like, well, then you're going to have, you know, propaganda there. And and so that that framing, I think, just comes back over and over and over. And it's such a like, after the 50th time, the cycle repeats. Are we going to learn to learn the lesson? I don't know. All right. Let me take a break right here. My thanks to Linode. Cloud hosting. That's where Daring Fireball is hosted. Oh, man, do I love Linode. Whether you're working on a personal project or managing your enterprise's entire infrastructure, Linode Cloud Hosting has the pricing, support, and scale you need to take your project to the next level. Uh, They have 11 data centers worldwide, all of them with enterprise-grade hardware, all of them on their next-generation network. And they just deliver the server performance you expect at prices you probably don't. As a special offer... For all listeners of this podcast, you can save $20. Get $20 credit with promo code TALKSHOW20 when you go to linode.com slash the talk show. What do they got in addition to everything I told you about? They've even got S3 compatible storage, uh, object storage, they call it. It's just like plug and play for existing code you already have that's set up for S3. You can plug it in to use Linode's cloud storage, uh, object storage, uh, just that easy. They've got, like I said, 11 data centers worldwide. And their low-end systems, their nano plans, are great for little personal things like running game servers for Minecraft and other games that that run like that, that you can have your own private server or your own private server for your kids and their friends, which is, trust me, will make you a very popular parent. Uh, really, it's a lot of fun. The nano plan is just 5 bucks a month, and you get 20 bucks with the coupon I already told you about, so you get like four months free. Not even like four months free, four months free. Um, anyway, just remember that the promo code is talkshow20. Go to linode.com slash the talk show, linode.com slash the talk show. And remember the code talkshow2020 to get 20 bucks. And they're hiring linode.com slash careers. If you're in system administration or otherwise like a Unix nerd type developer sort of person, go check it out. My thanks to Linode for sponsoring the show. All right, let's get up. Let's flash forward to the future, um, and let's talk about. And I think that it it's 
it's like the jump cut in 2001 where the bone in the air transforms mm-hmm. into the floating space station. Uh, yeah. That's like a missile silo. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, the app store and where Apple is yeah. and where we've gotten and this sort of eruption of, well, it's just call it, you know, not to make light of the other protests of more pertinent social matters, but it's protest, right? People are, there's, yeah, there's yeah. an eruption of protest about Apple's control of the app store. Um, this is the biggest wide scale criticism of certainly the app store. And I think of Apple's business practices that I can recall in their modern era. Yeah. And I'm struggling to keep up with it at Daring Fireball. I really am because, and I'm, I'm even struggling to come up with the analogy, but the best I've come up with is like, it's, there is no single, there's no single way to wrap it up. And that's my instinct. My style is to write, and even if it takes me three thousand words, it, you know, it, mm-hmm. I get the three thousand word Daring Fireball column out on the thing, and then at the end, I type that last period, and it's like, boom, there it is. Drop the mic. There's right. my word. Right, your definitive take. There is no, there's no, there, it, there's no way to do that with this App Store issue. It is like no, this thing is fuzzy. Yeah, and and it's so sprawling, and there's so many different things. It's like it's like going into a Vegas buffet. And, and you're hungry, but like, you can't even possibly sample everything, right? There's just no way to do it. It's, it's not feasible, you know? And, and it's like, there's the beverage station that everybody goes to. Everybody has to get something to drink when they go to the buffet. There's some consensus. And that's the 30%, the 30, 70 split is like the beverage station. And it doesn't matter if you're here for the prime rib or you're a vegetarian or you're actually just going to do all dessert because screw it, you're on vacation. It doesn't matter. <laughs> you're still going to the beverage station. So everybody is right. talking about 30% is too much, blah, blah, blah. But there's so much other stuff. But the thing yeah. that to me is like the, the part of the argument at the forest level rather than the tree level that is very frustrating. And it really, and I feel people aren't talking about it enough is. Well, however much money Apple's making from this, this is not, this is a side gig for them. It really yeah, it's is. not material. And, and yeah. you talk about like the abuses, uh, or it's, uh, I was, and again, going back to the nineties, I was never, I was never, even as a, as a Mac enthusiast at the time, I was never very keen about the DOJ's suit against Microsoft and never really thought, I, I wasn't really like a Mac user who was like, ah, they're getting theirs. I was like, ah, this doesn't seem right to me and it seems short-sighted. Um, I didn't think that making IE free was abusive. I was like, yeah, I think that this is the way things are going and it kind of sucks that Netscape was selling copies of Netscape Navigator Pro or whatever they called it, but... Gold. Yeah, gold. Um it, it's, it was though what Microsoft, what people accused, what people were upset about Microsoft's abuse of their position was their primary business, right? And that this, uh, you know, to, to encapsulate it, the idea that they had control of the operating system and their real money maker was the office suite of software that ran on the operating system. That was their whole business. Their whole business was licensing the operating system to OEMs and selling office like right. the whole right. idea that the microsoft became the biggest company in the world or the second biggest company in the world and bill gates is a cultural icon at the time was entirely about this two-sided coin of they have the os that every computer runs on and they have the apps that 
run on the OS. And that's their whole business. And that's what people poked at. And now we're talking about Apple and Apple having dominance. That's for sure. You know, we can argue mm-hmm. about what's a monopoly. Yeah. But we're talking about them and, and this widespread criticism of their business practices over a thing that is not really I'm not going to say it's not material, but it's not that big a deal. And you can say, well, services, 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 that's what they've been pushing. But even when you break out services, the part from the app store is only a, I'm not saying it's a tiny part of it, but it's only a small part of it. You know, they make, they, they make $20 billion a year from Google just to make Google the default search engine. And I think they've only got like 50 billion in services a year, like a huge chunk of their services isn't, is just money from Google. It's not even all of these right. subscription things that Apple is selling. Right. That's like found the money under the couch cushions. So, so yeah, there's a, there's a lot in there and I want to, I think actually context setting is really useful. Right? You go back to the, the earlier topic, go to Windows 95. One of the things they introduced along with Windows 95 and Office 95 and all that stuff was Microsoft introduced the design for Windows 95 logo. And it was like, it was it's seen as valuable. You're going to be part of the marketing campaign, but you're 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 not called app. I was going to say app, but your program, your software, has to conform to a certain set of rules. And I was all in favor of it. I thought it was great because it's like there's a lot of crap. There's a lot of shovelware. There's yeah. this garbage bargain basement CD-ROMs at at, at you know uh, your Office Depot store back then, and 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 so it'd be like no no no. If you want to get this logo, you got to do these things. And I was a big believer in it. And I saw a straight line from that kind of thing to the early versions of the App Store, mm-hmm. right? And so, and my context on that was, um, you know, you'll remember this, but for your, for your audience, I, I was working in a company that did blogging tools at the time. We had a, a blogging service called TypePad. It's like what WordPress is now. And um, the TypePad app uh, launched at the launch of the App Store. It was the second app ever shown off. Uh, Michael Sippy, who's now at Medium, was on stage with Steve Jobs showing off this app. And so we got a glimpse at what it is to be the featured app during an Apple keynote, really before anybody, right? And um, and what they asked for, like what, did, what was it going to take to be in the App Store, right? As the first app that people see. And, and it was interesting because to my mind, it was very much of a piece with Designed for Windows 95 or designed for Windows XP or any of these kinds of things. Like this is, and, and, and that was actually very, very contentious at the time. The idea that Apple would set standards separate from the 30%, separate from anything else, the economics of it. The idea that they would set rules about what you could or couldn't do on the device with software that you made was extremely controversial. Right. And, I, and I think that's sort of important to start with is there is a fundamental developer tension. And that's a long time ago, but it's not that long time ago. I think Apple, Apple, in particular, Apple developers have a longer um, institutional memory than most developer communities. So because we still talk about things getting Sherlocked. How long ago yeah. was that? Right. right. So, so how many so, people like, really remember Sherlock? I mean, it was, right. Right. Yeah. I mean, how many users did Sherlock have at right. its peak? Versus right. people who've talked about an app getting Sherlock, right? Right. Let and, alone, and so, so let alone Watson, the third party tool that got Sherlock. You know, it's, right, right, yeah. right. Yeah, Watson is a is a is a, a footnote, right? Yeah. And so, so we have a perception about what developer culture in the Apple ecosystem should be. And interestingly, even the iOS ecosystem, though it's much larger and more culturally relevant, is still shaped by the Mac history, right? So, like, like the the way we parse. What, what I ought to be able to do because I make software is this very, it's a, it's a set of cultural norms and expectations. And that's why it's fuzzy. 
because it is not about an economic argument about 30%, where if they reduce 30%, 28%, we'd be like, okay, we're good. Let's pack up. We're good. Right? Like it is not that at all. And this is actually what Microsoft got wrong in the DOJ and and, and antitrust trial around Internet Explorer, which was um, one, the amount of resentment of Microsoft was off the charts. It is like what Apple is now for the people that don't like it, you know, Epic or whatever, where they were just seen as bullies. They were seen as having all the control. And we have a fundamental mismatch between how the tech industry works, how modern software platforms work, and how the law works. Right, so antitrust law is based on a whole bunch of faulty assumptions. You know, one of them is that there's this market and there are these two players. Right, I can buy whatever. I can buy a pencil from this company. I can buy a pencil from that company. And there is nobody that is like, I'm going to make a considered decision about what social network I'm going to use, and I evaluated all the options. And Facebook didn't have the features I want, so I'm going to use Brand X. Right. It doesn't exist that way. Right. And, 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 and that's the misapprehension that our regulatory framework has in the U.S. And, if, and that affects the whole world because everybody's using American companies technology. And then and, and this sort of goes to, you know, when you were talking, I think, with Neelai about the, the, the congressional hearings, uh, Amazon, Google, Apple, uh, it, uh, Facebook, these companies are completely different. Yeah. Like they all have apps, but their business models are different. Their goals are different. In some ways, they compete with each other. In some ways, they all collaborate together. But they are—they have nothing in common fundamentally, right. and even in terms of what they're trying to do in the world. And so when you have all that stuff that's wrong and the people talking about it are developers that have their own distinct culture and goals of what they're trying to enable and what they expect from a platform, and that is illegible to policymakers and to users, like that's, I think, where the fuzziness comes from because everybody is forced to reframe their argument in terms that are either, in the case of Epic, legible to uh, l- lawmakers, to regulators, which is their clear audience that they're sort of speaking to, or to consumers, which they're also speaking to, but all the other devs are like, I need the user to understand why this, you know, of the 30% cost will be passed down to you. Like, people fixate on the 30% because users are like, that must be expensive. That's uh, like, It's very easy to understand. But if we talk about what we're actually trying to enable is competition, then the question is, what competition to whom at what level? Right. And in the case of Microsoft and DOJ, it, it, it manifested in the end of the game as they had people in the room watching them during meetings that slowed them down from being able to do stuff. Yeah. And we saw that with the stagnation of Microsoft for the decade after. Yeah. Right. From from the first decade of Bomber's rise, where they just made a bunch of boring enterprise products and they made billions of dollars and nobody cared yeah. except for the Xbox. Right. And, and that's actually great because you have the rise of, uh, well, web standards, period, uh, which would not have happened. Uh, if, if if the Internet Explorer monopoly had stayed, uh, you had you know Firefox and then Chrome. You had and 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 the thing at the moment I think about all the time is in the original iPhone demo when Jobs gets out the iPhone and he does the pinch and zoom on the New York Times homepage. Yep. Right, and it is stunning. It's just it's one of the it's one of those moments in that entire in the entire history of Apple. Yep. Right, that and of tech that is stunning, and. For me, that was like, well, Jeffrey Zeldman and many others had fought for web standards for the decade prior to that. And that was why that could render on Safari, period, and then, on any platform. And the New York Times hadn't done a damn thing, right? It was the right. New York Times. And the reason yes. it was such a great demo and so perfectly selected by Jobs was the New York Times homepage. It still is kind of recognizable. Um, it it still looks very New York Timesy. And it came up on the phone and, and he was just the master of demos, right? Because it didn't, he didn't belabor the point, but he, he mm-hmm. brought it up. It, it, 
you can see it's the New York Times on the phone and it looks exactly yeah. right. So you're, you as the viewer, you, the, I, everybody had the same thought was, wow, that little wow, phone real. has it. It's real. And then immediately you think, but it's useless. It's too, way too small. Not yeah, like, yeah, not yeah, like, yeah, oh, yeah, you yeah. have to be 21 years old with perfect eyes and you can read it. Like literally the, nobody could use it. Nobody could read it. The pixels were too small. And then immediately he pinches to zoom. Or double taps, you know, and then he was like, also, yeah. you could just double tap and it'll you zoom double in. tap and zoom into the image. And, yeah. and that's where the web standards angle really worked was because you could double tap on the page and it would semantically pick out the element you double tap right, the on. div and, and go right. Yeah. And, and so this is a really interesting thing because there's so much in there. And obviously, you know, the greatest software or tech demo of all time, but, but, but you come back from that and, and there's a bunch of interesting things packed into there. First of all, like his framing of it's the real web, not the baby web. And right. people forget there had been, WAP. you know, WAP and all, yeah, exactly. And like all these weird, like, you know, junky uh, mobile sites, but also developers and through developer culture and developer advocacy had spent a decade prior saying we need to be ready for new devices. And then eventually, you know, uh, Ethan Marcotte and others would call it responsive web, you know, a few years later, and, and as it sort of came to be known. But this idea of we're going to embrace web standards, we're going to embrace the responsive web, this is something that came from developers articulating a value around really freedom. Like, it is this very highfalutin, you know what I mean? It, 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 like, it, it is like wave the flag kind of stuff. We ought to be free and we ought to use standards. And it was like, uh, and I was a part of the Web Standards Project, and I was like, you know, this sounds very theoretical and very abstract. I don't know what we're fighting for. Why do standards on their own matter? Why does it matter? If it renders an, an Internet Explorer, why isn't it that good enough? You know, and you have to really interrogate that. You have to challenge it. And, th- and that's sort of the mode we're in, is people can't say where they're going to. Developers can't say, uh, the solution to mobile apps being fair to people and d- developers and users is do X, Y, Z. Because they couldn't, it's for the same reason in 2000, when I started working on the Web Standards Project, we couldn't say, well, we want a smartphone, which didn't exist then, to be able to, to render the New York Times homepage. But we, if, if everybody's building to this standard and there's an openness there and, and, and anybody can participate in a fair way, then experiences will be enabled like this. And actually, it's really interesting because there is no retroactive claiming. Jobs didn't nod to thanks to Web Standards, and we so far we could do this, and Nobody, in the, even in the advocacy community, didn't claim it as a win. I mean, right. that's what's really, really striking. Is like when you change developer culture, everything happens at this weird, ephemeral, non-visible level. I mean, this is why I build developer tools. Like, this is why this is my job. It's like I obsess over this. And so in the moment we're in with, with um, the App Store, what, what I think are the principles that if, if we could get to a distillation of it is, put aside consumers for a minute, for developers, is one – I want a level playing ground. I do want it to be the same rules. I want it to be something I can understand and I know what I'm getting into. What did I agree? Did I, you know, this is not a Darth Vader deal. Pray I don't alter the deal further. Right. And that is what it feels like. I think, I think actually everybody has some degree of consternation there and that it doesn't actually affect most apps. It's not actually on policies that most devs are going to run into, but the uncertainty is the killer. And, and then the other part is there is diff- there are different deals. It is unfair. And that's because, well, if you're Adobe or you're Epic and you have Fortnite or you're Microsoft with Office, they do make a different deal with you. If you're <laughs> Facebook, they do make a different deal with you. And, and they can't say it, right? And, and, and before they couldn't say it because it doesn't fit Apple's aesthetic. Like, we don't explain. That's not what we do. Now they can't say it because there's congressional scrutiny. And if you admit 
you know, like, you know, uh, Amazon's ethos can be F you. <laughs> That's yeah. what we did. What's your problem? You know what I mean? And, and old Microsoft definitely would be like, yes, and yeah, we did. So what? What are you going to do about it? Right. Apple can never be that. They don't, they don't, they don't want to communicate that way. And, and then I think, you know, there's a sort of uh, idealism to it. And so they are facing the reality of one, they do, they are a giant, they're a trillion dollar business that didn't happen that way accidentally. And they do make calls and they do make partnerships and they do compromise. I mean, it's just like, you know, Tim Cook is probably the greatest uh, uh, supply chain, you know, manager in human history, or at least since like Genghis Khan. Right. And, and I think if given his druthers, he'd be like, we would like to not be in bed with the human rights injustices right. in China right. right now. But he's like, you know what? You got to do what you got to do. That's where he's at. Yeah. Everybody makes a choice. And I want, and I think they're on that same, same part with developer rules. Yeah. Well, that's, that's not a bad analogy. I, I get it, you know, and I, but I, I do feel that there is a a very easily – like a lot of this would be very hard to unwind and could be and should be and maybe will be at the point of a regulatory gun, you know, and maybe not. But there's an easier part where it really does feel like they're Darth Vadering people and mm-hmm. in, in terms of we're changing the deal. And at least when Darth Vader screwed Lando for that deal, it was – for the fate of the galaxy, right? Like it was, he's going, he wants Luke, you know, <laughs> the right? stakes were high. Like Luke, it was obvious was the key to the whole thing. Right. And it's, it's almost as though Darth Vader was putting the squeeze on Lando over, you know, wedge Antilles, you know, oh, yeah, he's a good pilot. You know, if you just pick your, you know, favorite star Wars nerd, obscure character, like, why are you doing this? I'm more of a Porkins guy, but sure. Right. But like, you know, with, with, with this idea that, that Apple has a team combing through the app store, looking for apps that have been in there for years, maybe 10 years. Like the WordPress app has been there for over 10 years. Years. Yeah. And, and retroactively, nefariously being like now, right. the shakedown. And, and, you know, and that, you know, companies like, and, you know, disclaimers, sponsor of this podcast, Squarespace and, and all the other hosting, all these things that WordPress competes with, that Apple's looking at apps in that space and saying, you have a free app that you just use that you can get in and, and you know, add content to your CMS and stuff like that of a paid service you're paying for outside because it's not really a thing you do on your phone. Your phone is, you're just using the app as a better client than a web client would be. Um, why in the world are they trying to get them to do in-app purchases that they don't want to do. And then people mistakenly jump to uh, the polarization angle is that Apple is trying to take 30% of WordPress's money or 30% of Squarespace's number. That's not even true because they're only going after 30% of the people who would sign up through right. the app, which is clearly less, far less, especially for yeah, but that that math doesn't matter. I mean, yeah. you're right about that, but like, the, but it the just shows like why, it just, why people feel. This but way. it just shows why is Apple? Why doesn't Apple see that they are do, however much money they're f- the the last few the, the the drops of cash they're getting out of this campaign are so much less in value than the brand damage yep. they're doing to the company. And brand yeah. damage, you cannot put a dollar sign on. What is No, no. And and, and you to win back developer trust, like I mean, right. you, you look at Microsoft, which you know was vilified by developers and now, you know, they bought GitHub and people were like, great, which is wild. But that literally, literally took them 20 years 
It took 20 years and billions of dollars, right? right? I think about the first time that at Azure sponsored something you did. And people were like, they did what? Yeah. Right? It was, it was, oh my God, but they're the, you know, they're the evil empire. And, and now people are like, yeah, Azure, sure. It's like alongside AWS. No, fine. we did a you video. It was when I did, was doing yeah. the Vesper app with yeah. Brent Simmons and Dave Wiskus. Right. And we needed a back end and the iCloud storage stuff wasn't there yet. It wasn't a good option. And Azure was perfect. It was what we needed. And we talked to them. But people were surprised, yeah. right? Because Microsoft was still shifting the yeah. perception yeah. about what they were. And, and the point was that, and that was, that was developer culture dead that they had been paying down for the better part of two decades at that point. Yeah. And to the tune of billions of dollars invested. And, 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 and Apple was on the cusp of making a mistake like that. I really believe that. I really believe that. Because right now, developers kind of like them, even though you know, there's, all the, there's all those complaints, blah, blah, blah. But right now, there's actually a lot of positive affinity. And also, on the cusp of the, you know, the Apple Silicon systems coming out. And, and this sort of revolution that I think is going to come, that is so exciting. Like it's actually one of the most exciting things in Apple history, right? And, 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 and you're like, for, for, like, don't make this mistake for small money. If it were for, right. you know, $50 billion, all right, have a conversation. Right. If it's for a nickel and dime under Matt Mullenweg's couch on the WordPress app, why are you doing it? Right. And, and, and so what I come back to out of it is, you, first principles, like what did Jobs say? When the App Store came out, look, we're not trying to make money. off. He said it. Yeah. We're not trying to make money off of this thing. We want to. We want to make sure it's good quality stuff. We want to make sure there's no viruses and, and junk and malware on there, spyware, whatever. Right? Like he, that's kind of. What, and I'm paraphrasing, but it's almost exactly what he yeah. said. You don't want to go to and, make and a phone like, call and then your phone doesn't work because you installed exactly. something. And he said, you know, and, and we're just covering our costs. Like we got to host it, we got to provide it. All the free ones are going to be free, so we want to subsidize that. And 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 it was such a strong argument. It was such a strong argument. And I was one of those people where like. Everybody around me was like, man, they're going to try to control everything, and why can't there be this, and why can't there be that? And I was like, look, I think this is a really valuable thing to add into the ecosystem. And I, you know, my perspective was coming off of, you know, I was much more on the Windows side those days, and I just switched to the Mac right before that, I think. Um, but, but it was like trustworthy computing at yeah, Microsoft, yeah. and they had done the big push on, like, we're going to stop – all development on Windows XP and just redo it to not have viruses all the time. And, yeah. you know, it, every day was an Internet Explorer bug or an Outlook bug or whatever it was, right? And so they were right in saying, here's this other model. And that was the world that came out of. And they were right in saying, we're just covering our costs. This is not a revenue driver for us. Right. And, and, and what I don't, I think they were naive about was the move to paid services. And, and most importantly, I think what, you, you know, I, the thing I, it's such a, it's weird because it's actually like almost moving to me, even though I'm as cynical as anybody. You, you set up a Mac, you set up an iPhone, and it says in the start screen, privacy is a human right. And the boldness of declaring human rights mm-hmm. as a thing you even care about when you've unboxed your device is still that is the, like that is the pure like that is the the best distillation of like anybody in technology of what you want to do is you want to say these are rights and this is what we do about it right and then, and you come back out of that into where they where they lost the plot on this is 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 that there are principles that fundamental underlying why you have an app store that is about protecting music experience and data and all these kinds of things and Actually, one of the most important parts is uh, the framing so many people have used. If you're not paying for the product, you are the product. Apps that are paid uh, are important because they sustain creators to make them. 
apps that are subscriptions are even more important because they sustain creators over time and for coders to be able to keep making it over time. And without that, you end up with the anti-pattern of in-app purchases, which are extractive. And even worse, you end up with ad-based surveillance, which everybody's doing and we've normalized, right. but it's incredibly destructive and is intention with the human rights declaration that Apple makes the first time you open up any of their products. And like, this is actually the, like, this is the thing, like if I have Tim Cook on the phone, this is what I would tell him is real simple. You say privacy is a human right. We have ad surveillance that is violating people's human right to privacy on your platform. The most reasonable, understandable way to undo that is subscription-based products. And you have put a chill on the entire subscription-based market by introducing uncertainty for no reason and no benefit to your company. Right. That's the argument. Right. And it's funny because my one of my things that – I don't want to go too far into the epic Fortnite thing because I talked about it in my last episode and we have limited mm. time. But I, yeah. I think it's so weird from Epic's part that they didn't foresee – the threat to Unreal Engine and their responsibility as the platform vendor to that, uh, that you, you have to, you know, you need certainty to, to, to develop. And, uh, and the thing with Unreal Engine is it's like, sure, there's hobbyists who, who, who are using it to make hobbyist games, but you know, it's used by people with, you know, budgets for their there's games. Billions of dollars tens, of value created on it. Tens of millions of dollars budget and you know, hundreds of millions up to billions of dollars in potential revenue from the big games, you, you need to depend on it. And yet Apple on the other side of the exact same argument is the one who's also reducing the dependability of their platform that, hey, we had this app or, you know, and that's why the hey situation is so clarifying because I think that their fundamental argument that, hey, we'd been doing this with Basecamp for 10 years and mm-hmm. we have an email thing that we wanted to do the exact same way. And now you're telling us we can't because this one's email and that one is project management. And I, I think that's so fundamentally clear and true. And the way that, you know, there was an interview Jason Fried did with Jason Calacanis on his podcast where he said, you know, if this turned mm-hmm. out the wrong way, I was thinking about just retiring because I don't need to, I don't need this. I don't, I didn't get into business to have somebody tell me what to do. And um, mm-hmm. it, it's just, it's the, the fact that they just assumed that it would, you know, and it, putting aside whether they could take signups in the app, they're like, fine, we didn't do it with Basecamp. We'll sign people up on our website. We can get our own customers and we'll just have a client. And, and the fact that Apple doesn't see that th- this entitlement that they express in a lot of their few public statements on these things where they're, they're, they express a sort of, why aren't these developers grateful for us for providing, developing these tools that Apple themselves needs to make their own apps, right? That's the, the, the benefit of this that, you know, they make the, you know, Epic doesn't, isn't grateful for metal, but Apple's using metal. And the fact that developers get to use it, the whole dog fooding thing is what makes the platform work. But why doesn't Apple see that? Even the free apps make the platform better, right? That if you have a great WordPress client for your iPhone, that is better than going through the mobile website on the same phone is a is a net benefit for everybody. It's a win-win-win where WordPress and all the WordPress open source sites and other people who aren't related to the company automatic, everybody with WordPress installed, which is like a third of the web, has a client they can get on the iPhone and it's and it's a better experience. So the user benefits, they have a better experience for managing the website. And Apple benefits because they're platform has a great client that's better than the web 
for managing WordPress sites. It's win, win, win yeah. all around. Why in the world are you so, trying to squeeze 30% of the money out of people who aren't going to sign up in the app anyway? Nobody's so going to sign up to make a website for their company through the app. It's crazy. Yeah, it's not going to happen. Right. So, so you, you look at like, what are you trying to enable in the world? Right. And I, I think if you're Apple, I assume, you know, I don't know these guys personally, but like you want more base camps in the world. Right. You want more automatics in the world, but these are good, you know, and I happen to know, you know, the founders of Basecamp and, and automatic for 20 years too, but like small, these, world. Are, these are good software developers, right? Right. You know, these are, these are people that make the tools we use. Their business models make sense. They are not enabling widespread misinformation and, and violence. They're not, right. you know, they're not doing all the terrible things. They're like, we made you a tool, you use it to your job. You pay us some money. Bob's your uncle. All's good. You know what I mean? I was like, yeah. All day long, more software like that, please. Run by thoughtful people, great, even better, right? Th- that's what you want. That's what you want your software development ecosystem to be. And then I look at it, and I, I, I got a dog in this fight, right? I make a tool that lets people make stuff on the web. And, and it's very intentional that we've built a platform for the open web. Uh, we think that's valuable, you know? But even putting that concern aside, as a developer, and I've been involved, you know, I've developed for every platform, really, over the course of my career, Um when you develop for a proprietary platform, it is in some ways fundamentally, a, you know, a, 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 sh- a sharecropper position. It is it is an extractive position because right. you are creating value to that platform owner and you are trusting them to re- reciprocate enough value and kind, right? Where you're going to be able to make a living and your users are going to benefit and the, over time the value accrues to you. And this is why whether it's Sherlocking or bundling or tying, those things are so fraught because it, it, it violates that trust. And, there, and it also reveals the thing that everybody is not talking about, which is there is a fundamental tension. If you make enough money on any platform, the platform will integrate that thing. They will either buy you or they'll compete with you, right? Because if it's yeah. that much value on the platform, they can't let it go outside. And I, I think about this a lot of times. It's like, yeah, it put aside Basecamp and Automatic. You know, Adobe made its bones on the Mac platform. That's how it became a, a global software titan. But you couldn't make Adobe today on iOS. Right. Right. If you extracted that much value, they would bundle you or they would buy you or they would compete with you and shut you down. And and, and then the inverse of that is nobody can argue it's it's pretty good now, but nobody can argue V one of Apple Maps got millions of users on merit. Nobody would argue that. Right? And 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 you know, maybe it got an unfair time or whatever, but like there's nobody that's like, oh, I made a considered decision. I looked at all the options and most people chose this thing. And so there is a, a thumb on the scale with bundling and tying. And this was, this was the Microsoft issue. This is the Apple issue now, which gets to if you reveal that your thumb is on the scale in two ways, one of which is you're only allowed to make a certain ceiling of revenue before or in a certain strategic category before we will subsume you one way or the other, either increase the tariff or bundle you or, you know, compete you out or the other issue, which is that, well, we can choose what we bundle and what's in here and what we compete with you. Anytime you reveal that, developers have to still feel like they're not threatened by it. And the way you get there is certainty in defining this is where the platform goes and this is where it doesn't go. These are the boundaries that are there. Or, or at the very least, document the interface. If you'd like to swap out, here's what you do. Now, there's problems around that, around user experience. This is where Apple... You know, I think it's had a very good point of view, which is, you know, the experience on the Android phones when you would like open a photo and it'd be like, here's your first time using the phone. Here's five different photo apps. What do you want to use? Terrible. Nobody wants that. And it's bad for users. And then there's this fundamental thing that goes back to the thing we talk about with the regulation and policy. 
we look at competitive markets as if you can substitute, you know, X for Y, Coke for Pepsi, right? And and the truth is, things blur that line all the time. And in, in the in the Microsoft Internet Explorer era, they were characteristically just petulant about it. They were like little children where they were like, oh, we can't put a browser in it. Well, then we're going to take the browser engine out. We're going to break all your apps, right? Because you need to have both the app instance, the user-facing instance, and the system component capability. And we look at that on, on you know, iOS, and it's like the camera is both a system capability and an app. And, uh, you know, the WebKit, Safari, is both a system capability and a user-facing app. And so we have all these things that are both. And the, the thing about that is internally, internal to a big company, everything that becomes sufficiently used by users will reflexively be seen as, well, we have to have that on the platform. Of course we do. Why would we want to deny anybody that? Because it becomes successful, right? And so there's a definitional creep that happens. Right. You just you just agglomerate. It's, 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 it's you know, colonialism. Right? Like you just, well, of course it has to be ours. If we don't do it, then somebody else could do it. And then that would be bad. And right? again, and, not, and that's not, that not to relitigate an old war, but PostScript was proprietary to Adobe and they licensed it. And everybody's fonts printed out real bitmappy before and then with mm-hmm. postmap they came out of your laser printer smooth and then Apple and Adobe or Apple and Microsoft sort of were like, well we need our own thing like that and we don't want to pay Adobe so they made true type. And I know I'm simplifying yeah. this argument greatly, but Adobe was like, whoa, 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 we own vector output of fonts. And you yeah. know, and it's like, no, of course, once once you see it, you have to have it. It has to be built in. And the idea that you would need third party software to get smooth vector font output, it's just like in hindsight, it's like, yeah, of course it was going to be built in. Yeah. And so that I think that pattern just keeps repeating, which is like, if you want to long-term have developer trust and you want to do right by your consumers, you have to define the boundaries around the terms by which you will either expand your grasp and pull in those things or that you'll kill off third parties or that you will change the economics for devs. And they're, because Apple doesn't proactively communicate, like that's not ever their style. Like they, they just say yeah. what they say on their, their schedule. It, feeds the uncertainty yeah and and also they are shifting right apple is more open these days and they do engage more these days and you know there's been this shift but they're still they don't know where they're going to about what their communication style to developers will be they know they're more open than they used to be and i I think the the stunning moment on that was talking about the mac pro roadmap Mm -hmm. right like that was such a change and it was like for, for the better i actually think it's great but they don't they're like okay we're we're still closed by default and communication we are slightly more open when there's something really egregious, uh, but only in certain categories, right? You wouldn't do that about butterfly keyboard. You wouldn't do that about, you know, antenna gate back in the day. Like there's still categories where we're like, we don't dignify that with a response. And this thing is so diffuse to your point. It's so fuzzy that you can't say to a developer, well, we're going to do X or Y, right? The only time you get that Christmas of answer is if you're Taylor Swift or if it's so <laughs> acute, you know, where I love the idea that DHH and Taylor Swift are in the same category. Like, that's fascinating to me, right? And in DHH's case, it's like inadvertently, because I don't, I, I love DHH and Jason Fried, but like there's no way they were so clever that they timed the hay thing no. that well to be no. right before, you know. No, WWDC. in fact, I know but it was going to come out before, but it was uh, postponed by the coronavirus and the quarantine. Yeah. You know, would have been. So like, they got lucky. Yeah. But if on the, uh, on the eve of your big developer event, you have incredibly respected 
visible developers saying we got completely screwed and we tried to follow the rules. That is your worst case scenario. In a way that you really, at a common sense level, most people really saw it on their side. It really, you know, there's a very common sense. No brainer. Cut and dried. All right. Let me take one last break here. I got a fourth and final sponsor. Oh, let me tell you about our friends at Squarespace. Look, you know Squarespace. If you listen to the show, they sponsor often. They're a great company with a great product. All in one. Everything you need. Web hosting uh, for your site, including domain name registration, ability to host a blog, the ability to host a podcast, the ability to host a portfolio of your design work, the ability to host your own store where you sell stuff and have the e-commerce go through the site without you being an e-commerce expert or a developer. You do it all by drag and drop. WYSIWYG right there. On the screen, what you see is what you get because when you're designing and tweaking and moving around and manipulating your website as the owner who's designing it, you're doing the real thing with the real website that everybody else sees without the admin abilities. It's that simple. It's that real. It's that direct. And if you are, as you might be listening to this show, the sort of person who knows things like how to code HTML and CSS and JavaScript, you can get in there at any place you want and do your own thing at that code level if you want. But if you're not, if you don't know the difference between CSS and JavaScript, you're fine. You can do the whole thing graphically. That's how Squarespace spans the gamut from expert to not expert, hosts it all, and really great award-winning tech support, everything you could possibly want, great analytics, Everything you could possibly want. Uh, and where do you go to find out more? Go to squarespace.com slash talk show. Squarespace.com slash talk show. And when you sign up, you get a free trial for 30 days, by the way. When you sign up, just remember that code talk show and you'll get 10% off your first purchase, which you can use for up to a full year of service. Save a lot of money. So my thanks to Squarespace. Go to squarespace.com slash talk show. And remember that code talk show to save 10% off your first order. My thanks to Squarespace for their continuing support of the talk show. Here, let me read this quote. And it's from Francisco Tomaski, who was, uh, he was on the mobile safari mm-hmm. team at Apple when the original iPhone came out. And he's a very astute critic of the current app store situation. Uh, remember Apple's iOS rules would not have allowed for the invention of the web browser. Let that sink in. They would have rejected one of the most important technical innovations in the history of computing. Microsoft's bully tactic of making IE free seems quaint in comparison. Um, and it, you know, if you had the basic idea, if you had an idea that is to today's mobile web what the web browser was to the desktop, you, Apple wouldn't approve it on on iOS. And I think that's true. It's fundamentally mm-hmm. true. Um. And that's, it's a good way of espousing an argument that people have of there should be some way, something outside the app store, whether you call it side loading or, or whatever you want to do, but some way that if somebody wanted to write software to run on iPhones that isn't compatible with the control, again, skipping the money, right? Nothing to do with money. Yep. It's, it's, I have a great yep. idea, but it's incompatible with the rules and it would be awesome. This is fundamentally broken and I get it. 
Right. And I think that there's people who are like, why don't I get it? Why, you know, why don't you see that? I do, I do. It's absolutely, but it's a trade off, right? There's also the fact that the freedom to write software at that level, the freedom for Adobe to write the PostScript extension for Mac OS that boots as the system boots so that the, 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 uh, and uh, what was it? ATM, Adobe Type Manager that rendered yeah, anti, yeah. anti-aliased fonts, uh, before the system <laughs> could do it so that the fonts the actually looked good. And it was amazing. It was the future, but it was a third party that rendered your postscript fonts on screen in the operating system. I mean, that was fabulous. It's unbelievable. And, and it was great. And it made, it moved the industry forward, but having the ability to install software at that level is also what led to malware. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and again, and I know malware is sort and, of scary and, 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 and system instability, yeah, right? System instability. Disable all your extensions. Right. And, it's at the enthusiast level where you you co- we coasted through that era knowing that we could manage our computers and were careful about what we installed and knew how to fix things if they went wrong and it wasn't like our lives were over if we had to start over with a new computer or whatever it, normal people aren't like that and like the encapsulation of computing into something where you can feel 100% confident that there is no way to mess up your iPhone is also a thing. They're both things, right? It is an yeah. absolute truth that part of the excess, uh, success of the iPhone isn't despite Apple's control over every bit of software you can install. It's because of it. And yet that same control is what keeps a third party, like if Glitch, if your company came up with an idea that would glitchify the OS, I mean, just, just, you know, just because you're here, but I mean, it's it's not outlandish that you would, but it would involve allowing anybody to program and and put apps on it through Glitch on the phone. It's not going to go through the app store, right? It's just not, they're not going to let it, you know? So how do we square that? How do we, how do we deal with this where both of you know how do we deal with the cognitive dissonance that both of these things are true so there's there's a there's a real tension here because iOS devices are not general computing devices they're not they're right. not designed to be and right? people go nuts and, when i say this and so now they're going to go after you thank you for saying that yeah, that's <laughs> it's fine i mean but they're well and, and and i think that's actually a thing that's worth understanding which is like um the the computer in your car is not a general computing device right Right, most computers in our lives are not general computing devices. Right, there's one in your microwave, and there's one in your car, and there's one in your smart speaker, and none of them are general computing devices. But our expectations as developers are defined by general computing devices, and we see right? how they it, all it, could be. Right, it's yes, easy yes, to see how that. the iPhone well, and could we do be. that. People right. do take apart right. whatever your clock radio, right. and they're like, "I got it to run Linux." Okay, cool, cool. That's great. But like, like the fact that it is hackable is right. a different thing and it has a different purpose. And, and, and it would not occur to anybody to be like, my microwave computer does not stream Spotify and it's just an injustice, right? right. And so, 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 but the nature of it is that, and I think this is the non-obvious part, it goes all the way back to the conversation about the command line and real computers, right? Everybody who can make apps on iOS is, is somebody that's comfortable on the command line at some point. Right, like at some point you drop down and do it. You write code at some point, and so for a developer, an iPhone or an iPad is a general computing device. If you have an Apple developer account and you have Xcode, it is. You can do whatever you want. It is a device that can do whatever you want, and so that's something that's really that's I think that cognitive te- you know tension 
between my users can't experience it as whatever I can imagine, but I can experience what I imagine because I can see under the hood. I can see the Unix under the hood. And, and, and like that thing, which is like Apple could articulate these principles, which is like nobody expects, why can't I do any random thing on a Nintendo switch? Nobody's, nobody's even mad about it. Right. Like it doesn't even occur to them. Right. And, 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 you know, the, the iPhone is an app console, Right. It is, it, it is a different thing. And, and, and then the hardest tension with that comes from the fact that one of the apps on the console is a web browser. Right. And, and, and that changes our expectations again. And again, I, I don't even remember if the Switch has a web browser, but like the it old does, Nintendo, the Wii did. Yeah. 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 I mean, the fact is I don't even care because it wouldn't occur to me to browse the web on the damn thing because who cares? Right. That's what people that's what always, for. when I bring up this app console metaphor, they're like, well, when's the last time you browse the web on your Switch? And I'm like, I agree. But that's not yeah. that's not what I'm saying. I'm but not saying ability to task, right? Yeah, and and so I'll, I'll bring it all the way back. I think mean, you know none of these are original arguments, but but when we make that argument, the the question is like one: Will developers ever be comfortable with a general what looks like a general purpose device that is not a general purpose computer? And and, and the answer is no. Like they can't be because we have all tasted of the forbidden fruit. Do you know I mean? And I'm old enough where it's like I had computers that booted into a command line. If you couldn't code, you couldn't do anything with it. You could right. do jack shit with it, right? But you come all the way to this era and you're like, I know there's a computer lurking in there. And, and it is so tantalizingly close that it is frustrating they can't get to it. And, and the best analog to these products on Android, you kind of can't. Now, it's still flawed and all these other reasons. And, and, and it does introduce a risk. And I think that's sort of this thing of like, the fundamental emotional tension of like, I can see, I can see through the window, right? Or it's peep through the keyhole to the place I want to be, but you won't let me go there because you say I'll hurt myself. Right. And, and, and the truth of it is Apple is right. Like there would be millions more people in the world whose data would be stolen or credit cards would be leaked if Apple unlocked the platform. Like that is a risk. But there are also, for example, millions of people who can't do work as sex workers because they, they, an iPhone won't let them use apps that they want to use for payment, right? right? And, and there are people who can't, like all these categories, right? They, things you just can't do. And a lot of us don't bump into them that much, but you, you feel it. And developers are this sort of leading edge where they can, and it's interesting because they articulate it in terms of their own needs, Right. But, but I think what they're fighting for is like, but a user would want to do X, would want to be able to send their data to this place that's too hard right now or run an app that's not fun. I, I think like the very, very simple, clear example to me is um, game emulators, like a licensed, yeah. old, you know, classic video game emulator, the Atari 2600. Yeah. Right. It is madness that there's not a really good Atari 2600 emulator that could just include the games that you want to you know, Pitfall and Pac-Man and you could just play it. And there's a lot of reasons why, right? And it's like, oh, but it encourages piracy and all these kinds of things. But also low-level system access, you know, below the level of the APIs that they don't want you to get to. Because to make it performant, you probably would have to do that. Nah, I don't think you would. No. Maybe not with metal anymore. Yeah. But but, but that, that, that historically was an argument. Yeah. But, but there's a lot of reasons why we get why they didn't do it. It gets into that risky category. And all those things to say is like, there's a, there's a paternalism. There's a we know better. Yes, Right. And, and and people are chafing at the we know better, even though I think developers would agree develop, the, the users left to their own devices will put their data at risk, will do weird, foolish things with their device if you let them. I, I think actually it was a triumph that they could go a decade plus without having to put a file manager 
on iOS. Right. You know I mean? yeah, I think, like that's fantastic. And it's great. And in some ways kind of, I know that again, this is a whole show, but in some ways kind of made it worse by adding it, you know, that, that mm-hmm. there was, Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Now you have two, you know, now you have two things. Right. And yeah, I was yeah. just using an app the other day where there's, it, it, it both tries to span, I don't want to mention it cause I don't want to throw them under the bus. Cause I think there's a noble effort, but they're trying to span the, everything is in the app in a library like Apple notes, but also you can open files and it's like, uh, and oh, yeah, all of a sudden both. it's like, where's the thing I'm typing in right now? Is this one of the files or is it in the library? And it's like, you kind of can't have it both ways. But, no. Yeah. You don't want to have a mental model right. of what their data storage is, but yeah. But, and that's sort of it is there's this abstraction and that's actually, that's the, the underlying thing, which right. is, what feels like paternalism to a dev is actually a level of abstraction away of concerns about technology right. that enables a wider audience. Right. And and when you had to go to the file menu and choose open, that precluded a billion people from being able to understand how to use their device. Right. And people don't want to reckon with that because like, we get it. We know, not only do I know what's in the file system, I know what's under the file system. Right. Right. And it's like, but that's not where people want to live their life. Right. And you know, and, you and know this too. That's a hard tension. You know this too. You, it's still to this day you cannot talk to normal people about the difference between RAM and storage. It's all memory, <laughs> right? No, but it's weird. And it maybe yeah. maybe no, that's right. Maybe, that's right. Maybe it's a weird glitch in the English language that we have this word memory that means both. But I suspect linguistically it probably is true in yeah. a lot of languages. But it's remembering a thing. It's you know. But is it remembering a thing and you turn the power off and it goes away, or remembering a thing mm-hmm. and you turn the power off and it's still there? And it's like you try to well, explain I mean, this to people and they're yeah. like, what? You know, and it's like, oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and all these, right, all these concepts of, like, abstraction are very hard. And and the weird thing, I, I say this all the time on, on the glitch side of things, which is, like, I'm like, the hardest part of coding is not the coding. It's everything else around it, <laughs> right? It's understanding all the concepts right. and the, setting up your development environment, right. all these kinds of things. And, and it's because, like, reading the code is like reading algebra, and a lot of people can do that. You know, yeah. and, and, and so that's such an interesting thing to me is, like, this keeps coming up over and over, which is, like, we think, we ignore the complexity of the abstractions we're living around. Right. In favor of part of the part that seems easy to us. So I mentioned and this. All right. Defending that is hard. Yeah. I mentioned this to a friend and they didn't even realize it worked like this. But in, and in turn, again, I don't have a solution. There is no easy answer. But why does Apple insist that everything subscriptions go through their payment system if it's in the app? Well, the, the cynical answer is because they want 30% of it. And that is true. And I think part of mm-hmm. whatever Apple can undo this is by starting to say, we, we're not going to, it, we'll take it. We, you know, but we'll also make it easy to do this outside the app. Right. And, and it's that Netflix hay model of you can take signups on your website outside the app. And then you can have an app where people just sign in and use the service and we don't get a penny because you signed up outside. But if you sign up in the app, you do it our way and we take our 30%. And here's, here's an idea of this encapsulation. So I, I've complained publicly about the New York Times and I'll throw them under the bus because I love the company and I love the newspaper, but I'm a subscriber and I've been a subscriber for a while. But if you want to unsubscribe from the New York Times digital, you have to call them on the telephone and you talk to somebody <laughs> yeah. whose job sure. it is to keep you from unsubscribing. And it no, takes I love getting on the phone and, and people have gotten out, <laughs> have told me they've done it, you know, and, and it, it's like the minimum amount of time it takes is like 40 minutes. It, it's ridiculous. Yeah. 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 If, it's a half hour of your life if somebody. If you subscribe to the New York Times you. in the app on your phone, you go to I, you know, iCloud subscriptions, New York Times, unsubscribe, and you are unsubscribed. It's, you know. So, so this is, a, this is actually another really good example. That's all true. And, 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 you know, for Apple, the argument of we have to be mediators on payment because we'll offer a better experience um, 
and we'll get our 30%. Both are true, right? Like their economic incentive is aligned with their user experience incentive. And one of the hardest parts of this for third-party developers is the, the use case you just talked about. They're like, well, I don't do that. Right. Well, Apple is trying to protect the ecosystem from the right. overall harm, which is that there are bad actors in the developer ecosystem. Right. And the individual developer, you know, the, the Basecamp guys are not the bad actors. They've been good actors. So they're like, why am I being punished right. for this other guy being a jerk? And that's actually the kind of thing where, like, I, I think this is such a powerful opportunity. Apple can set up incentives because they have a big enough platform where could a developer earn the right to do payment off platform yeah. by proving over time or with affirmations in the app or some kind of app review status. Like this is the thing is like that idea of di- there being dynamics yeah. is really powerful because then again, that thing of like, well, why does, you know, why does Amazon get a deal on iOS that I don't, they're Amazon, yeah. they're a trillion dollar company. Right. You're not, you're some kid in the garage. Right. So, so <laughs> how do you get there? Right. And, and step one can't be one, be a trillion dollar company. Right. You know, step two, question mark, step three, profit, right? So so you just sort of document, here's a playing field that you can play on and understand the rules of, and not game, yeah. just just understand. You can earn user trust and do these things. And that's like that. That's what, it bugs the shit out of me. It's what vexes me so much is they, they, they will understand the flaws in their system. They make a strong argument. If we have to mediate overall the user experience because we are protecting users from bad actors who are hard to distinguish from you good actors. Yeah. That's actually, it's not easy. It is not easy. And, and, and I think that's such a, that's like, that's not obvious, yeah. right? Because you don't see them. You don't see the bad actor. They're blocked. Yeah. There's, and, there's a and, bit and, of that and that, on the That's Mac. such an important idea. There's a bit of that on the Mac with the Mac app store where the Mac has these things that you can do outside the sandbox, you know, where you can't, it's not even conceptually possible on iOS and that certain apps in the Mac app store have entitlements to use the technical term to do things. So like BB edit Mm -hmm. is in the Mac app store and can do things outside the file system that a default app from a kid in a garage can't do. You can, Mm -hmm. and, and then people say, well, wait, you said you treat all developers the same. Well, you can ask for the entitlement. So in a sense, I think that's Apple's, we're not lying. Every developer can ask for the same entitlement, right? but they may not get it. And there's where some people will say, well, then they're not being treated the same. But if you have the track record that barebone software has of being trustworthy and being- For decades. Right. And maybe you don't, you know, let's skip the decades part and say you don't have to do it yeah. for 30 years. Yeah. But, you know, <laughs> that, that, that maybe there could be entitlements for payment that you can yeah. earn. And, that, and then the argument for- you know, we treat everybody the same as everybody can earn it the same way. And so here's, so, and here's that's actually, yeah, so this, it's pla- I just wanted to say real quick, right. there's this idea of platform brokers mediating permissions for the players on their platform. And it's really important because if you don't have some mediation there, you end up with the permissions overload, right? Like right. The, the, the old, uh, right. I think it's windows Vista. Like every right. time you did anything, it'd be like, you moved your mouse. Do right. you want to confirm this by right. your admin password? Right. right. And, and we almost are trending towards that. Cause like every app wants location right. and alerts and da da da. And I'm like, I don't want to have to hit, uh, uh, you know, allow 15 times when I install an app. Right. So, so the platform has to mediate some permissions. And we see this with every kind of platform, like the social networks, they, YouTube has completely abdicated that they have any responsibility for the content on their platform. And it has been to the worst. People yeah. have died as a result. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And so if they had taken some, now there's this middle ground between complete wild west and we're, you know, patronizing you all being by paternalistically locking down all the permissions. And, and that's the thing that Apple can document and navigate. And like, they are smart enough and they get it. And they can also articulate, they are very good at articulating their arguments. This is good for users because, 
you know, like uh, whatever thoughts on flash, like all that stuff right. is a very strong articulation of user benefit value that people can be like, I didn't get it at first, but I'll come along with you. And if they could do this on this, where there's a, a third party payment entitlement and you could earn it through these trusted behaviors right. and, you know, and it could be like, whatever, there's a payment escrow if we need to be able to refund, or you commit to following a privacy policy where you're not going to use people's data this way, whatever it is advocating for users, I think devs would sign up for it enthusiastically. They'd be like, I want a shell. I'm one of the good guys. I want the gold star of trusted to do payments. So to tie this off, so you have an Atari 2600 or an old uh, Sega Genesis or whatever the Nintendo system was that was so obscure that I don't remember. But you wanted to switch games. What'd you do? You took the cartridge out. You put the other cartridge in. Now you have a new game, right? Mm-hmm. How do you delete an app on iOS and and all of its everything all the files everything it had? You just delete the app from your home screen, right? Mm-hmm. That's it. That's it. You don't have to clean anything up. There's no cleaning up situation. There's nothing left behind. It's just it's it's neat. Here's the cool thing. So people don't know this. I don't think because I've mentioned this to a few people and they don't realize it. If you have an app with a subscription and you subscribe and then you're like ah I'm done with this app I don't like it and you delete the app. And you say, do you want to delete this app? You delete the app on your iPhone. It then says, do you want to keep your subscription or cancel your subscription? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that is, it. it the, your subscription is encapsulated in the app the same way your files are encapsulated in the app. Everything is encapsulated yeah. in the app. And yeah. it's as neat conceptually as the cartridge in the the old right. physical days. And, and again, it's a massive form of user advocacy. Right. And it's a very incredibly hard technical thing to pull off. And it's seamless. But there's and, an, it, and it's, it's a triumph, but you also would never notice. Right. So it's not one line of code, but there could be, in theory, an API for your you know payment entitlement thing. You have to support this and we'll test it in review. And you're, yeah. if the New York Times wants to take credit cards on their own in the app, they can do it, it you know, through these terms. And then when you delete the New York Times app, it also will say, would you like to cancel your New York Times subscription? And you'll cancel it the same way, you know. But that yeah. encapsulation is part part of the appeal of the iPhone and, and you can't ignore that by saying, I wish that I could make an app that, that goes outside the app store without acknowledging that these things are useful from the the user's perspective. And and that's actually, I think that's sort of my fundamental frustration, which is there, there's, these are solvable problems Mm. and there's no way to have this conversation. And it's not, none of this is science fiction, right? Like we just distilled it down into, okay, payment entitlement. Like we, we, we broke the problem down. Right. And Apple knows all this. They've had a decade plus to think about it. Somebody's floated this idea. There's an entire keynote internally about this somewhere, right? And and that's not visible. And that that actually is the thing that really hurts developer trust because a million people could spitball a better idea than this. Every person listening is, oh, well, I could fix it by doing this. I have a better idea, right? That's great. And and that's the part that I think gets to the the inequity that people push back against and gets to the like what harms trust. Right, because they're like, well, we know, like, like you're affirmatively choosing this ecosystem because you're frustrated by other ones, yeah. right? And 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 that's something where you know I, you know, I spent all day long advocating to people why they should build stuff on the web, right? And and it's actually not that hard to sell when they think about it. But there's a generation of developers, you know, I'm trying to get them to look at Glitch, and they're like, oh, but you know, you're not an app store, and and that's how people use apps. I'm like, well, people used to use websites and they do every day, but they get to it through a link on one of those other apps, you know? And the the hardest concept for them to understand is, especially for like young kids, students, they're like, well, I made the, you know, my little app on the web and then who do I send it to? 
You know, I'm like, no, you don't have to ask anybody for approval. You don't have to, you know what I mean? And, and the most mind blowing thing by far, most mind blowing thing for them is view source. Right. When you tell them you can view source on a website and you can see it all and you can copy and paste it and it'll work on your, your webpage. It, they're like, did I hack this? Like, am I allowed? Is this, you know, like there, and, and, and what I realized is because they've come up in locked down ecosystems on, on platforms that were not general purpose computing devices what was the starting point for a generation of us that learned coding on computers where that was all you could do is now seen as transgressive. Right. And that is a loss. That is a thing that I actually think Apple, you know, Swift Playgrounds is fine, but it's called Playgrounds, right? right? It's, a, it, it's intrinsically infantilizing, right? right. And, and Xcode is like, it's a lifestyle commitment. Like you're doing a whole, you know, right. like the, there's, there's a big leap there. And, 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 and there's actually this middle ground, which could be like, if I make an app and I just want to share with my friends, I don't want it in the app store, right? Um, what what would I do right. if I just want to try stuff? That generativity of what, you know, my kid is on Scratch all day and it's incredible, yeah. incredible yeah. platform. I mean, just unbelievable. And, and there's, there's lots of different things like that. I think that's the thing that like was the spirit that inspired these platforms and that inspired the people to join them and is what is the emotional catalyst for why developers chafe at the limits, it is not abstract ideas about general purpose computing platforms, although I think they can articulate it that way. I think it is the thing that captured my spirit and that spoke to me like the first time I picked up a guitar or a keyboard and I could express myself, the first time I picked up a paintbrush or a pencil, when I picked up a computer and I could really create with it, not toy create, not baby web, right? right. Like 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 Job said, in your little baby internet, like not baby web, but real, real things. Doesn't then that you're, explain you're, the- you're empowering me. Doesn't that explain the persistent popularity of Minecraft too? Right. Oh this, yeah, very much this, so. Yeah, Minecraft is in that space. Roblox is in that space. Right. I mean, those are the those are the models I look at when we build Glitch, which is like I don't look at like like we plug in the Visual Studio Code and that's great, and you can write code there. But like I am not trying to clone an integrated development environment made by a trillion dollar company. I am right. like, where are people going and generatively building stuff that makes their heart sing? Right. So I, I, we got to tie it off. I know I've, I've you yeah. know, gone long, but, but let me tie this off with this thought. And it's the flip side of, of Francisco Tomowski's thing that you can't build the net, the, you know, the mosaic of 94 today on iOS. Mm-hmm. But the flip side of it is you can't make it on iOS either. Right. That's what we're talking about. Yeah. Right. You can't yeah. make it yeah. on iOS. Like it's, it, whether it should there should be an option to turn your phone into that sort of platform if you're a developer. This is my spitball idea, my loose, and I don't even want to get into defining it. I'll just call it. The name isn't sideloading. It's developer mode. It's developer mode. There should be a developer mode for iOS. And just the name alone should scare people off. Your web browser. Yeah. Your web browser has developer tools, and they're incredible. And they're built in. And they're free. But that to me is the part that it, it's sort of missing. And I'm sure Francisco Tomaski, who I know offline a bit, I'm sure he'd agree. I'm sure he'd say, yeah, you're right. That does suck. It sucks. You should be able to use the phone and the iPad to mm-hmm. make the thing for the phone and iPad that doesn't fit within the rules. But it's yes. both sides yes. of it, right? And that's the thing yeah. is that all of the older computers and what I mean by general purpose computer, and I know that it's what you mean, is it's both. It's that you can add things to it that weren't imagined before and 
you created mm-hmm. them on the thing itself. And that's the magic. That's the thing yes. that is like yeah. why I'm still into these things and why I, you know, it, it's that you use the thing to make the thing or just to break it apart and go. That, on, that on the- thrill, that joy of, of getting it to light up and right. do the thing that you had in your head and realizing this tool can make whatever I can imagine is what makes these things special and, and, and why people chafe at any limits that feel like they're a barrier yeah. between that. And, and it is also the spark that inspired these companies to exist in the first place. Yeah. Yeah. And they, they should, they should just honor that thing that brought them in, in the first place. And, and I think that's such a, that's such a vital, it's so doable. It's so uh, close. Ah, uh, thank you. It's so good to have you here. Everybody, uh, let's do some, uh, to point people. So your, your personal site, yeah. anildash.com, sure. mm-hmm. whatever happened to dashes.com. I, you know, after a while, I was like, I, I wanted to put my name on it, but yeah. it's the same blog, 20 years. Um, and uh, your company, Glitch. Glitch. Glitch.com, yeah. where people should mm-hmm. check this out. And uh, really, very cool stuff. Uh, really, really, really innovative. And you could do whatever you want because it's all on the web. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, people actually do make tons of, um, you know what, the biggest surprise was not just web apps, but um, you can you can hook up to your iOS shortcuts. Yeah. And so you, if you want like a little bit of a, like you need a little bit of logic on the web to do something that you want your shortcut to do and you want to pull some data down or do whatever, um, you can do that. So I think that's such an interesting space. But yeah, anybody who's a dev, I, I think it's like, it's great that people are building, you know, a Slack bot yeah. or something for work or a dashboard. But I just that the idea of a, a creative space to share something you want to make with the world uh, yeah. on the web. Shortcuts is sort of, and again, we can't go into it, but shortcuts is sort of the, the pinhole through yeah, yeah, the thing. Yeah, the keyhole that you can see the possibility through. And it and, and it's both you see the possibility and you find out that you can like, oh, now you can pop through and you can actually run like a web service in your custom thing. And so you can do a thing that had no imagination within, you know. <laughs> you were hiding is, from me the whole time? Right. It's like, oh, it, it is, you know, it is like a little peephole that you can see through it. Um, but the fact that it even exists and Apple clearly knows it exists and it's not off in a corner, it's actually gets keynote time. It lets you think that maybe somewhere within app, you know, that they absolutely are aware of this. And why don't you tell us, tell us your story about it? Please tell us. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's so, it just, it's so tantalizing. All right. <laughs> Anil, so glad to have you. Thank you for your time. Uh, be well. 